VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, December the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's sitting out there in the other booth hosting the uh, Pardon me, he's not hosting the show. I'm hosting the show. He's producing the show. If you pick up the phone and give us a shout, you'll be speaking with David Williams when you get in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so I noticed an awful lot of folks in our neighborhood doing their Christmas decorating as we steamroll towards the Christmas season. So in our house, the tree up and the Christmas doodads broke out, all the decorations, lights on the house and the whole kit and caboodle. You know, you kind of forget just how pleasant it is with the only lights on in the living room is the tree. So anyway, and I know Christmas is not for everybody and there's a lot of people struggle through the Christmas season, but here we go. I read a story yesterday about just how uh, big a deal it is for online shopping, and the numbers are absolutely staggering. So, according to Stats Canada, sales hit $3.8 billion in August, up $400 million over August of 2020. Amazon, south of the border, uh, global net sales, $514 billion U.S. last year. But then the story went on to also tell the tale of just how many people are receiving their packages, and someone, a third party potentially, has gone through it and stole whatever it is you ordered. And in this case, a fellow ordered a $1,200 or $2,100 Garmin watch. So it's happening all the time. And as I read that story, I was thinking to myself, maybe it's worthwhile talking about the whole concept of porch pirates again this morning. Lo and behold, I arrive at work, two emails over the course of the weekend where exactly that happened to two unsuspecting people living here. It was in St. John's, both cases. So what happens is, you know, if you've got the nuisances lurking around the neighborhood, the courier vans are going up and down the street all day long delivering people's online shopping uh, product. And of course, if you're not home and they know you're not home, maybe, just maybe, as soon as the courier van is out of sight they go up to your porch and they steal your item and off they go so just put that reminder back out there that maybe just you know whether it be have it delivered to your office or neighbors keeping an eye on their other fellow neighbors make sure that the porch pirates don't victimize you like they have me in the past a lot of parades on the go over the weekend of course ushering in the christmas season huge success for the downtown st john santa claus parade so only two participants from last week were unable to uh, participate yesterday huge crowds about fifty thousand plus people in the downtown to take in the big stick and santa himself and all of the floats so in addition to just the parade itself, of course, we know it's one of the largest food bank donations comes from the St. John's Christmas Parade or the downtown Santa Claus Parade. So apparently, according to the, uh, Galen Lambert, they've collected well over a million dollars in food over the last number of years. About $300,000 in cash all goes to the Community Food Sharing Association. So good one for those folks who participate and, of course, the organizers. And as you're all painfully aware, if you follow the NHL and, of course, cheering for our very own, Newhook, Alex Newhook, out 10 to 12 weeks with a high ankle sprain. Terrible news for him. He was off to a pretty solid start this season. So hopefully chin up, Alex, and get well soon, kid. And uh, as a matter of fact, on this date in 1909, the oldest surviving pro hockey franchise in the world, the Montreal Canadiens, was founded. 1909. 
All right, uh, cold quickies. So the Growlers down in Idaho wrapping up the first road trip of the season. Got trounced on Saturday, 8-3. Bounced back with a 5-4 win yesterday to wrap up their first road trip of the season. And at the Para Cup in New Brunswick, of course, our very own Liam Hickey participating for Canada. Beat China in the opener. Liam scored the first goal of the tournament, the power play marker. And they got a couple of games today. Played Chechia and, of course, their arch nemesis and number one rival, the United States. And congratulations to old team Guzhu over in Japan participating in the 2023 Karazawa International. They won it all, beat Team Sato from Japan 7-1 in the gold medal game. First win of the, uh, uh, for Guju and the lads in Japan. So congratulations to them. Next up, the Grand Slam and Curling Masters, December 12th in Saskatoon. All right, a couple of other quick ones as we ease in here on a Monday. Congratulations to all hands who are now going to be part of the Newfoundland Labrador Soccer Association Hall of Fame. The class of 2023 has been announced. The athletes, Albert Anstey, look, listen to these names, Albert Anstey, Fiona Curtis, Nigel Facey, Kathy Hurley, Ron Martin and Ann Stapleton. In the builder category, Joanne Millay and Mike Edmonds and athlete builder, Charlie Babstock. The Holy Cross Jubilee Trophy, uh, two-time national champions, they're going to join the honor roll of teams. And the honorary life member is Judy Kellaway. Congratulations to all hands there. Okay, moving on. So I was pleased to hear on the VOC Morning Show with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey, this year's Broad Scholar from Newfoundland and Labrador, a young lady named Catherine Dibbon. I mean, just the accomplishment to be named the province's Road Scholar, joining another 11 from across the country, fully funded studies at the University of Oxford. It's been happening since 1903. So absolutely brilliant stuff. And what an achievement for Ms. Dibbon. So she's promoting a pregnancy advocacy. She's in her final year of a Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science, studying political science and chemistry. She's looking at the impact of maternal plastic exposure on placenta function. So off she goes to Oxford to pursue her doctorate in uh, reproductive health and research pregnancy. Congratulations, Catherine Dibbon. And on that front, and obviously she hasn't been a victim of learning loss necessarily, and obviously because of her achievement, we gave this some consideration through the course of the pandemic. You know, the schools were open and they were closed. We went to the hybrid model, and there was absolutely the possibility or the inevitability of the concept of learning loss. In other provinces across the country, they had a close look at the curriculum to ensure that they did everything possible to make sure moving from grade to grade or from high school into post-secondary that they attended to the learning loss. Not so sure we did very much associated with that particular issue here in this province. So people who entered grade nine back in 2000 are now moving off to potentially post-secondary. I read a story from the United States looking at their ACT exams, and the scores are the lowest in 30 years. You've got to imagine that's also a problem in this country and certainly in this province. If you're a family member of someone who is struggling, unlike years prior to the pandemic where they were really thriving in school, now potentially struggling with the next year's curriculum, because maybe, just maybe, even if it was broached the year prior, we probably did fast track a lot of the curriculum given the compressed nature of the fits and starts of schools being open and closed and the hybrid model and all the rest and if that's something you want to take on let's do exactly that and the province is touting progress regarding childcare. remember the last time we got an update numbers can be somewhat misleading 
when the professor says they've created X number of spaces, but the net advantage was minimal because sometimes when we create a space, we might also lose a space. So now what they're saying is they've created a thousand new spaces under the $10 a day or less childcare program. There's also that portal that they open up to see where the big demand may be. And there's been some 1200 responses to it. So childcare, of course, the affordability issue. Yep. Got it. Accessibility probably not to the level that the demand requires so we can take all of those things on whether it be k-12 childcare, and yes folks who are moving off into post-secondary okay i mean i guess it's the irony associated with the discussion about all of these struggles people are having the gig economy people worried to death about money day in and day out and yet some folks who find themselves homeless so, you know, it was always mind-boggling to me that we couldn't figure out something as fundamental as bathrooms. So on Friday afternoon, the city of St. John said they will indeed keep the bathrooms of Bannerman Park open 24-7. Let's hope that there's not another repeat of some of the damage that has happened. And I think there was only one isolated incident in the past regarding folks from the tent city encampment. So that's going to be open. And then between NAEP and some community groups, they funded two permanent porta-potties. In an effort to try to lure the mayor, I guess it's tongue-in-cheek, and it's not, the irony's not lost on me, so they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony. I mean, it's, you want to have a little giggle, even though it's not funny, and they really hope that the mayor of the city, St. John, Danny Breen, makes his first visit to that area to speak with the folks who are living in their tents, so there's a lot to that conversation. Whether it be emergency shelters and housing, permanent solutions, and all the rest, then I heard a, someone speaking from that area regarding the stigma associated with his mental health and what that's meant for his eventual homelessness, so there's an awful lot to that, and we can tackle it as best we can here on the program this morning. Not even sure where to start when it comes to housing any longer and all the different pots of money that have been announced. Some was an affordability uh, target associated with it. Some really not sure if we're going to hit the required housing starts that the CHMC says in the country that need to build 3.5 million, uh, million units by the end of the decade. Not going to do it, but anywho. Let's move on. So we know that there's a quote-unquote bright future for the aquaculture industry in this province. The province is into it, right? There's a vast difference between how the East Coast aquaculture industry is governed versus the West Coast of the country. But now there's been... Uh, seven companies accused of colluding, conspiring to manipulate the global price of salmon, including two companies operating in this province, Moe and Grieg. And we all know the first harvest for Grieg's operations out of Placentia Bay. So this is not new stuff. We've seen the Competition Bureau in this country harking back to the bread price-fixing scandal and the penalties associated with this. So there was no admittance of guilt. It was not settled in the courts. It was settled out of court to the tune of $5 million in the class action lawsuit. So the class members were whether it be some of the big buyers of the product, grocery stores, distributors, fish processing companies, large hotel chains, and what have you. So that issue, I, I don't think we probably have a great understanding. Uh, just how competition works in this country, we've got a problem. We absolutely have a competition problem, but now these seven companies, including two operating here, have not admitted any wrongdoing. They say in an effort to save time and money, they were willing to spend that $5 million to settle this up. They're also making a donation to Food Banks Canada to the tune of $250,000, but aquaculture in some corners, still a really controversial industry in this province, but let's go. One second sip of coffee. Okay. And some folks working in seasonal industries 
you know, like tourism sector and like the fishery, especially in the uh, processing sector necessarily, when the country gave us the fall economic statement coming from the finance minister, Christian Freeland, I thought the issue regarding the four weeks that would have been lost in employment insurance had been reinstated. But when people dug a little further into the issue regarding the four-week extension of EI, it's not coming up to the hopes that people had put forward. Okay, so there's changes in what they call the EI divisor. It determines the weekly benefits. Earlier this year went from 14 to 16. So that's the number of weeks used to calculate a worker's weekly benefit, 55% of the average of their top earning weeks. A divisor of 14 means the benefit is calculated using the average of their 14 best weeks. A uh, divisor of 16 means, of course, the average of their 16 best earning weeks. So I thought that that four-week extension was going to get people where they needed to be, but apparently not. And then there's the folks who have been able to apply for this four-week extension. Fish harvesters aren't eligible to apply for the extension. Neither is anybody who applied for the EI benefits before the cutoff date of the 10th of September, and that would include an awful lot of fish plant workers. So the FFAW, whether it be Mr. Pretty or anyone else, wants to join us on the show, elaborate further on how I thought that target had been hit when we got that update from the Deputy Prime Minister, but apparently not. All right, how are we doing out there this morning, Dave? A couple of quick ones. So, no real uh, details have yet been shared, but the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary has confirmed that a 35-year-old inmate at Her Majesty's Penitentiary died over the weekend, a sudden death. Of course, we'll get the examination done by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, and maybe some more details will be shared in the near future. I don't know if it's related directly to anything regarding the conditions or who might have been involved. There, there was rumors floating around around uh, cardiac arrest that was drug-induced. And maybe I'm naive, but when we talk about just how, how much drugs are in the country's penitentiaries, you know, the question being asked, and I think it's a fundamentally sound question, is how do all the drugs get in there? I mean, they hear the stories of visitation has been caught almost in full, whether it be black mold in the visiting room or the lack of the correctional officers to bring the inmates out for a visit. So if that has been reduced vastly, and I don't know if we're seeing the drones drop the drugs or people flicking it over the wall or how people are getting the drugs in, but apparently, as I'm told by the CEOs who have been uh, communicating with me, is that there's a ton of drugs in the facility. So the question is, how? How does that happen to the extent with which it does? You know, we've heard stories where people have been searched and even some uh, extensive body searches have revealed that folks are smuggling it in in different crevices of their body, but the inmate is now, there is a 35-year-old inmate who's found dead. Well, I guess he died at the hospital after being rushed from the pen, but a sudden death and there's still a lot to understand on that front. All right, there's a few more I wanted to get to, but let's uh, quickly get to your calls. A couple of quick uh, not positive notes necessarily, but so long been a fan of April Wine. One of the first concerts I ever saw was April Wine and Streetheart down at Memorial Stadium. Their frontman, Miles Goodwin, dead at the age of 75. I mean, they are a classic rock, iconic band in this country. And so another more positive note on the arts front. Congratulations to the new inductees of Canada's Walk of Fame including our very own Rick Mercer. Fantastic stuff. Also, pop-punk icon Avril Lavigne, Connor McDavid at his tender age is getting a star on the Walk of Fame. Also, Tattoo Cardinal, who was an uh, actor in uh, Degrassi. Uh, Michael Budman and Don Green, co-founders of Roots, are also amongst this year's inductees. But congratulations to Rick in particular. All right, we're on Twitter. 
We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Let's take a morning through St. John's City Councilor representing Ward 2. That's Ophelia Ravencroft. Ophelia, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I'm very sorry to hear about the death of Miles Goodwin, by the way, a hometown hero of mine back in Halifax. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a big fan of the band. Like I said, one of the first big shows I ever saw featured April Wine and Street Heart down at the stadium. So, yeah, sad loss. Icon. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, just giving a quick call this morning to uh, you know to thank the folks that were involved in the efforts to get the bathrooms reopened uh, as of Saturday at 4 p.m. Um, I think, as a lot of folks know, I had spoken out against the closing of the bathrooms to begin with. Um, as much as I understood the concerns our staff brought forward, I felt that in the absence of a suitable alternative, we were doing a real disservice to the folks down at the encampment, and frankly, to the general public um, who also rely on those bathrooms as a critical public resource. Right. Um, so, I'm really grateful that after you know a few days of very hard work, we've managed to not just get them reopened, but actually do the other thing I've been asking for for several weeks, which was to expand their access very dramatically, in this case to 24 hours, and make them a little more usable for everybody at the same time. Uh, this is exactly what I think we need to see. You so know, I don't want to see anyone sleeping rough, but if they're in a situation that they don't, the least we can do is make sure they have somewhere to pee. The argument that the city was making is that, you know, it was the risk of damage or fire or drug use. So having them open is one thing. Does it come with any additional human resources, whether it be security or otherwise? Yes, and that's what's been made clear, I think, in some of the announcements. Um, this, you know, the conversations we had on Thursday, which then stretched into Friday with the province and community partners, resulted in uh, some resources being shared from the province to give us additional cleaning and additional security, um, which is already something, of course, that we had, but now we can do it more and we can do it better. Um, this is exactly ultimately what I think is necessary. Critical public resources like this, anything we can do to make sure that they're properly funded, properly resourced at any given time is obviously a huge win. Um, but in this case, the need was particularly critical. And I'm glad that there has been, at the very least, that kind of uh, resource sharing agreement or whatever kind of wording could be put on it. Yesterday, when they had, or whenever it was, when they had the two porta potties delivered, of course, they had a ribbon cutting ceremony. All in an effort, they say, you know, the whole political optics of the mayor will show up for a ribbon cutting. Maybe he'll show up for the first time on site, and yet Danny Breen has not made his way there. Also, people were using your name, saying, you know, where's Ophelia Ravencroft? It's your ward. They were looking for you, and they say that you have been pretty silent on it. Your reaction? Well, I don't agree with that statement, first of all. Um, I've been extensively in communication with a number of my residents, community partners, levels of government, internal departments at the city uh, to try and deal with these issues. Obviously, you know, as has often been said, jurisdiction is an issue here and that when the whole thing is on provincial grounds and when the province has access to uh, the housing stock and supports that would ultimately allow people to get the indoor housing that they deserve, that respects their human right to housing. Um, you know, the question is kind of what's our involvement. As soon as this happened, I spoke out. Um, in terms of why I haven't been down to the site yet, I'll be very candid. You know, a number of members of the public, I think, are aware of this. I'm, I'm a trans woman, and, you know, I don't mean to toss my identity around lightly, but it's something that I do think deserves to be mentioned here. Um, there have been significant numbers of reports from members of the public and organizers alike of individuals uh, with connections to far-right groups across the country, uh, particularly uh, transphobic groups like the One Million March for Children, who have come down to the site on multiple occasions and filmed people without their consent and put them on their social media for their tens of thousands of followers to see. Um, obviously, as a trans woman, for me to be in a situation like that is pretty dangerous. And I've actually spoken with a number of the organizers, and they've said they fully understand. And I've uh, actually been speaking to them over the weekend to try and set up a time that I can come down and meet with some folks under safe conditions and hear what they have to say and see what we can do for them. 
Well, I hope your safety is not at risk here. Let me say that to begin with. And when it comes to, you know, more permanent solutions here, there's been uh, gone back to the drawing board with the city of St. John's to reapply for money from the housing accelerator fund. That won't settle anything before the snow starts to fly here in the city. What's the municipality's role when we talk about things like shelters, minimum standards, and oversight and monitoring? I know it's basically a provincial matter, but at some point there's going to have to be that collaboration between different levels of government to get people in out of those tents. So what do you view the city's role when we talk about whether it be short-term solutions like emergency shelter and then moving out to more permanent solutions that hopefully can be found before the winter fully kicks in? Well, I need them to be found before the winter, frankly, and so do those residents, right? This is kind of we're watching the temperatures drop, and, you know, as ward councillor, I don't want to see anybody sleeping rough in my ward at any time, but particularly not when the temperature is this inhospitable and frankly dangerous. Um, in terms of what the city's role is with this sort of thing, I think the fact that there has been so much discussion in you know the last couple of business days of last week and then over the weekend around this kind of resource sharing coordination effort between us, community partners, the province, and so on, uh, I think that that's, you know, we clearly are aware that we have a role to play. And it's a question of, at this point, determining, you know, how much work is everybody doing? How much can we share with each other? Um, with enforcement of minimum standards and so on, um, in some cases, when there are issues with life safety, for example, um, overcrowding, people sleeping in spaces they shouldn't be, uh, buildings that are not structurally sound and so on, uh, complaints that are submitted to the city about shelters do actually get investigated. I've, I've seen this happen on at least a few times in my time on council. Um, so we absolutely do play that role. You know, it's We don't operate the shelters ourselves. At the end of the day, NLHC as a provincial agency is the prime body for dealing with the sorts of things, but we do have a role to play and we do that. This is a question from a listener via social media. Say, uh, this is Wally asking, he's looking for an update for uh, over the course of two years, an update on the city's plan to convert three bedroom houses into one and two bedroom units, which she, which apparently you said you would provide. I said that I would try, and the same as anyone in any election platform, I said that I would try to do something like that. It is an issue that I have raised repeatedly with our housing division and with staff. And I will do my best to continue advocating for it. Currently, I think the, the feeling inside is that there are some logistical challenges with it that I've done my best to overcome. Um, at any rate, I'm no longer the housing lead on council. We did our portfolio switch at the halfway point. Councillor Ellsworth is now the housing lead, and uh, I would direct that question to him at the moment. But please know that it is something that I still believe has merit as an idea, and I would like to see us implement. Last one on the bathrooms. So is sure. there any caveat amongst discussions between uh, city councillors, the mayor, deputy mayor, that if and when there is another example of damage or fire or you know drug use and discarded needles in the bathroom, that there will be uh, uh, maybe redress, maybe go back to the drawing board, see whether or not the bathrooms will be left open, or are you just going to hope for the best with the presence of security on site? Well, I haven't heard anything around, you know, what happens next, because I think the feeling is with adequate security and adequate resources, uh, with cleaning and so on, with luck, we can kind of avoid those situations when they happen. You know, as has, as has been noted, um, it's a little bit unclear even to me at this point how many precise incidents there were of, uh, you know, whether it was vandalism, damage to the units, uh, you know, biomedical waste being found in there, anything along those lines. Um, I'm not going to put a number on it because, frankly, I don't know that number. It, hasn't, it wasn't shared with me. But in terms of what's next, the goal, I think, ultimately for everyone is to make sure that those bathrooms remain open. And as a counselor, that's my goal. I didn't support closing them to begin with, and I support keeping them open, you know, with whatever we have to do to make sure that happens. This is a critical public resource, and I hope that everyone is able to kind of step up their efforts to find folks the housing that they deserve. But until that time, I want to make sure that those bathrooms fully remain open because this is what they should have been the whole time. Appreciate the time this morning, Ophelia. My pleasure. May I offer one more comment before I leave? Sure. Thank you. I wanted to send out a congratulations to my friend Jenny Briggs, who's just been named acting chief of the Hollywood First Nation. Uh, Jenny's a remarkable advocate for her people. We've had the chance to work together many times. 
a fierce advocate and uh, for indigenous women, two-spirit people, uh, gender-diverse people, uh, 2 LGBTQIA plus people generally in the province. I believe that QFN is in fantastic hands, and I wish her all the best on her year as acting chief. Thanks for this. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. It's War Two Councillor in the City of St. John's, Ophelia Ravencroft. And just, you know, as an aside, it's truly remarkable now, we're always going to have the need for emergency shelter. It's going to be part of the landscape going forward. But to know that we didn't even have what people refer to as minimum standards, you know, whether it be for oversight and monitoring and policing and the regulations required to make sure they are as safe and as clean as possible, to know that in 2023 we're now going to start that exercise to create these guidelines of minimum standards, just imagine when you make the choice, offer that as an option to get in out of the elements and choose not to because of some of the experiences you've had in these emergency shelters in the past, whether it be you're trying to kick the drug habit and the amount of drugs being used, whether it be violence or threats of sexual violence and, you know, or being uh, repeatedly approached regarding sexual activity. I mean, it's just remarkable that we can't figure this stuff out. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two. Ron, you're on the air. Day. Good day to you, Ron. Yeah, uh, I want to. I want to bring up about the parade yesterday. Uh, it was really, really, really interesting. Uh, there was a bunch of us uh, together with four degree nights at the, with the nativity of our of our of the of the baby Jesus and 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 the animals and all that in the float. And from Duckler Street down to to Springdale Street, there was we always run into a bunch of kids on the side with their parents, only young kids. How noticeable it was that how many of them said, oh, look, the baby Jesus, the baby Jesus. And in this day and age where we're having all kinds of church problems, it was so good to see probably 70 or, 70 or probably 80 groups of young kids that would notice the baby Jesus in the manger. And and uh, I mentioned that to Jerry and the boys. But I said, that, that's something now. And he said, yeah, we're having the same thing on the other side. And I just thought I mentioned it because I mentioned to a woman, she said, you should call Patty on that because that's different than what you normally hear about the Christmas parade. But it was really good, really encouraging to see young kids, uh, school age, just young school age kids, talking about uh, talking about our our Lord in the manger, uh, in the navigation, and, and then the um, the scene of 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 of, of his birth. The nativity scene. So, yes. I really, I really, I was overcome with. It, I must say. So, what group organized that particular float round that you're involved with? Uh, the Knights Columbus, uh, run on the fourth degree member, Jerry, Jerry Poster and, and Brian and all the boys. There were six of us there, Brian Raiden and a few of us. And uh, we walked the course, and uh, and every time we came across a bunch of kids, there was, oh, look at the baby Jesus, look at the baby Jesus. And, and it was good to see that, that happen with, with kids in this, in this age, the time we're having also with the church and all the things that's going on. So a lady mentioned me, you should, you should call on that. I said, I think I will. So I said, in order to do it. <laughs> and I'm glad you did, Ronnie. I appreciate the call. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot. Take care, Carol. I'll see you around. Okay, okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, and very quickly, and, you know, not to throw cold water on what Brownie was talking about, how pleased he was to see that uh, children were recognizing the, the nativity scene. 
Then, of course, unfortunately in the news, an RC pri- a Roman Catholic priest out in Avondale charged with sexual assault against an adult. The, you know, anyway. Someone just sent this along, and I had seen it, but I did not mention it. It was uh, regarding Kate Paisley, of course, one of the outstanding long-distance runners here in the city and in the province, and I guess in the country. She had a third-place finish at the National Cross-Country 10K Race in Ontario just last week. Third place in for the seniors, all-age elite category. Congratulations to Kate. She's something else. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Santa Calls returns December 4th to your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Herb. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a veteran. I've been uh, around for a while. I'm 71, and uh, I just want to talk about the homelessness here in, in, in the city. Uh, now, there's so many empty buildings around, as, as we know, both know, and, and we've heard on the radio on the show here many times. Uh, my idea is I would be more than willing to volunteer my time to help out in any way I can if they found a building or something. There's just a couple of buildings up there in, the, in Stavanger, the old Costco and places like that, you know. You could put little uh, bed-sitting ones in there for these people, and if, uh, but uh, you need... In my opinion, you need the government, I think, to get in on something like this as well. Yeah, those, that building, the Costco building and the Target building, are now privately owned. I don't know whether or not that private developer would be interested in doing that, but there's other buildings around owned by the government that are vacant yeah. and have been for a long time. So prior to this, we heard all kinds of stuff about, you know, trying to repurpose government assets or sell them off because we'd have all the carry costs in place, whether it be fire insurance or otherwise. So, exactly. yes, that could be an option to have another look at, whether it be the Hoyles building or Escazoni or something like that. So I don't know exactly what it would entail and how much work would need to be done and how quickly it could be done, but something more than what's currently in place has to happen, and it has to happen soon. Absolutely, 100%. And, and I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure that I can get a bunch of other veterans on hand or like retired RCMB, people that are interested in doing a project. Because like the military now, I was with the, what we call the aerial engineers. We used to go across the country down to the states all over the world doing projects like this. We have electricians, carpenters, plumbers, uh, water and fuel environment technicians, which is what I was, and uh, different trades, and also managers within the system like that were that are retired. If there's a project we could go at, I could probably I could get a hold of a bunch of these people, or if there's any of them out there listening that would like to get a hold of me and put something together if the government could supply a billing we could have that done in short order and we could have a, a spot there for however many rooms we can get in there and safe secure place for all these people to go to good on you herb i wonder what kind of evaluation the government is even doing regarding some of the vacant buildings that they do indeed own or i guess we own i wonder if there's anything's been done at all to evaluate what work would have to be done what buildings would be suitable we don't know you know we talk about big numbers of monies coming forward to build new units and some of the timelines associated with it but it's the fourth of december uh, the temperatures are cold the daytime high today is zero here comes the snow so all of those big pots of money are not going to do anything to satisfy or to address the issue today not a thing and, and i also have another uh idea that i would say that they could eliminate this not eliminate but they could get these people in out of the cold real quick 
If you go to the military base and say you want one of these big marquee tents and you sit something like that nice and warm and cozy in there, get them all, every one of them a footlocker with their own padlock on it. They could be in there for the winter. And then you get a project like one of these buildings going. By the spring, you could have that all done and fixed up. And you got yourself a, a pretty good solution there, I believe. Yeah, I think there's more that can be done and what exactly they might entail. We've tried to cover as many bases as possible because one thing I know, some of the links that people have sent me, Apparently, the turnaround time for modular homes can be done very, very quickly. And once the yeah. materials have arrived, they can be assembled very quickly. Someone exactly. sent me what is a very interesting-looking concept, what they call a sleep trailer. It's basically uh, mimicking, say, a Japanese business hotel setup, where it's individual pods. People won't be in a collective congregate living setting with all the problems that come with it as a mercy shelter. So it's not ideal, but it's not out in the cold. So I just wonder if any of these things are being considered beyond building homes in the future. I don't know. I wonder, does the government really want to uh, uh, fix this problem, or are they just sitting back on their laurels doing as they normally do? You know, like it's it's just amazing because I'm pretty sure uh, it'd come up with a, a bunch of veterans and a bunch of people that could, if they had a project like this to, to do. I got all my own tools. I could bring my tools and everything. Let's get at it. You know, that that's that's from me. That, that's my uh, my. my uh, input for today and what I'm what I'm thinking in the back of my mind, right? So I just uh, thought I'd run it by you. Well, I think it's a great idea and the generosity has not gone unnoted here and I appreciate the call this morning, Garb. We'll see if there's any appetite for others like-minded to uh, get involved here and or if government's hearing your message of your willingness to do something to help because I bet you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there seeing and following these stories and thinking I'm willing to do something about it. You know, there's yeah. folks dropping off supplies, blankets and clothes and all the rest of it and food and that's really good and that's really helpful but just wait till the first massive snowstorm hits then what it's not the solution it's a great help but you know they need more I just had a sun email float in through the corner of my eye. Someone who's uh, uh, taking you up on your offer. He'd like to join forces with you. So I don't know how I'm going to share this stuff. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold, Herb, and I'm going to give you a man's name and number. Okay. Okay, I'm just going to text it to Dave, so I'll just put you on hold for a second, okay. and you'll talk with David. Thank Thanks, Herb. Uh, all right, thank you. Appreciate your all time, right. sir. All right, David, he's on hold. I'm going to text you a number here now. Let's keep rolling, and we'll go to line number four. Perry, you're on the air. Good day, sir. Good day to you. Now, I, uh, seven days ago, I walked in my father's shed, and I went through the floor with my leg. My leg is all tendons is torn, busted up. It's not very sweet looking, still swelling, and I needed a, a, a brace to go over and the widgets going under to make me foot turn to a certain way. And it's roughly $150, roughly. I couldn't afford because I'm on low income. And I don't know where the social assistance things, uh, God give them uh, the, 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 the ordeal, they can't throw it on me and say, I'm not getting it because it was an accident. I'm still punishing. I'm getting nothing to live because social assistance is nothing. I'm sick. I got major problems, heart, diabetes, depression, and he turned me down. Now I'm not even supposed to be walking on the leg. And he thinks they're rule of the roost. And there's no good point to him or anybody from Minister of Health or anybody because they won't talk to you. 
He wouldn't even. The, the, uh, 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 they sent the letter from Ryan Ward's office. They wouldn't even do that. And like I said, the only one that's fighting out there is, is Kathleen on Ryan Ward's side. And they're not listening. And, and we as the public, their paycheck is being supplied by the public. And when I can't get took care of, I'm a Canadian. And now, I I half was saying, hey, I love everybody. I don't care what part of the country, Ukraine or Afghanistan, it might be better. I don't know what's going on with them. But they're, they're really beating up on me. Were you told that this was a necessary piece of medical equipment? Yeah, there's a brace that goes around your leg, and you got to put widgets in to put your foot in a certain shape. Okay. And like I said, I get in, well, I get in the Canada disability and sold my wife and, and two little $300 from the social assistance, and he turned me down. I, I've had appointments to see specialists, and he turned me down. I don't know what they think he is. I'm not sure where you can turn for something like that. I don't know if there's a specific uh, pot of money uh, associated with this kind of stuff. So where would you have got, where would you have bought this? You got a price on it. So where would you have bought this brace? The only place you get it, is, uh, as far as I know, is in Grand Falls. And I'm in King's Point. And the, 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 right now, all is, 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 is saying the small community's got the goal. I'm in a beautiful spot. I don't want to be nowhere else. So out in your area, I'm not 100%. Like in the city, I know places where people can go, go for it, and I don't know if we can talk about support financially for getting it. But I have your number, Perry. Uh, I want to reach out to someone I know out around where you live, whether or not they can maybe help me and you out. And if so, me or David will give you a call. So let me send a couple of emails around. I appreciate that very much, sir. Okay, Perry. Stay in touch. Thank you. Okay, so I also I'm going to give you a number here now. Uh, let's get give him a shout, Dave, and say that uh, Perry can give the folks at the hub a shout, and maybe we can try to connect the two. Okay, what am I at here? Let's keep rolling. Go to line number two. Christine, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? I'm not too bad. I have a question. You were talking about uh, the extension of the EI for four weeks? Yep. Uh, Who does that involve? Everyone that's on EI? No, there was 10 or 11 different what they call economic zones in the country, including in this province, where that extension was granted. Like, for instance, it doesn't cover people who are working in the seasonal industry living in St. John's. It's outside of this part of the province. So that's some of the questions people are asking because it's kind of fuzzy when you hear someone say an economic zone. What, what's an economic zone and who's impacted by it? How many people live in it? And where does it begin and where does it end? But it does not include everyone on EI in this province. Okay, so how would we find out? I've asked them to provide me with an actual economic zone map, and they're yet to reply to that request because I'd love to be able to share that information because I guarantee you I have dozens of people asking me exactly what you're asking me this morning. I live in paradise. I'm on EI. I work in the seasonal industry. Do I qualify? The short answer is no, but I'm trying to find out specifically where that map starts, and as soon as I get that information in my hand, I'll be talking about it on the show. Okay, and also, too, like, um, my husband's been uh, drawing EI every year, but uh, his EI run out uh, about two and a half weeks ago. So another question is, does he qualify? 
uh, you know, it used to be a go-to on this program that when there was a question that regarded provincial politics, call your MHA. When it comes to uh, federal issues like EI, call your MP. But the constituency assistance and whoever your member of Parliament's office should be able to give you some information. I'm waiting for the big answer from the Department of Finance on this one. So if when I get it, I'll talk about it on the show. But it's always, there's people working in those offices that are there to do and answer questions just like yours. So where do you live in the province? Cornerbrook. You're on Cornerbrook, so your member is Goody Hutchings. Uh, she's, of course, a cabinet minister. There's someone in her office who can indeed answer that question for you. So just Google up Goody Hutchings MP, and you'll get a number for her constituency office and give her a shout, or give the office right. a shout. Thank you. You're welcome, Christine. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Good morning to you. Do you have anything, anything new to share this morning? <laughs> well, I sent you a few emails this, uh, the weekend or whatever a week. Uh, one thing that I would like to, for a lot of people in Newfoundland to do, if they got a computer handy to them or whatever and get the time, especially the politicians, uh, they need to look at it. Is they Google the com- a Broken Compass, the scandals of Compass Group, to realize what our healthcare system has brought into this province and what the government is not doing anything about uh, basically uh, why whatever i don't know uh it's a long-term thing their contract is going to destroy our healthcare system and like i said this uh, website there it's done by what's called a company corporate watch who are an independent company over in England who watches uh, scandals around the world by people, for people and that and stuff, say that can't do it any other way. Uh, big companies that overpower uh, different institutions like healthcare and that and everything else. And they've got so much money in that that they take it over. And, you know, it's very difficult for to get anybody to look into it or to do anything about it. Now, Andrew Fury and him are avoiding it. I know now that, like before, I it was something Andrew Fury uh, inherited, and I didn't know if he was involved with it or not or what. But now I'm pretty well positive that he is aware of this uh, Compass Group in in our healthcare system that has taken millions of dollars out of our province. And also uh, uh, his assistant there, uh, Hutton, Fred Hutton, he's aware of it now. He heard done your open line show. And I've been talking to them, and I don't understand uh, Tony Wakeham, how he's not going in onto this, because if he's hoping to form the next government, uh, it's something that he's going to have to get in the government to deal with. And it's got to be dealt with, or... Like I said, our healthcare system is going down the tubes. Uh, we can't stand this millions of dollars. That the more money the government spends, the more money they're sending to the province. Because the more money they spends, there's more profit for the Compass Group. The way that they got the contract written, and all this stuff is very important if we're going to have a healthcare system in Newfoundland. If we're going to keep it, and right now it's in, well, it's in everybody's interest in Newfoundland. To find about about uh, educate yourselves on this broken compass, the scandals of Compass Group, 
and know what you're dealing with. Know what uh, Eastern Health is after bringing into the province and uh, what they're forcing upon us. And it's just not right. And, you know, it don't seem like that there's anybody here in Newfoundland that can do anything about it or willing to do anything about it. They're a big organization with more money than the, than the, than the province. They can buy and sell the province and never even know it. It's, uh, like I said, we're being overcome and dominated, and we need a champion out there somewhere to speak up and to come forward in our political arena somewhere uh, to book this of, of what they're doing, uh, to bring it before the public, let the public know of exactly what's going on, that every time a movement is made in Eastern Health, money is leaving the province. Every cent that they can get is leaving the province. And it's totally ridiculous. And when we put money into their bank account, they charge us then for the fees for putting the money into their bank account. And like the overall system, I, I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to go to. I've gone now to this International Corporate Watch to try to get them to do an investigation into the scandal here in Newfoundland. And maybe they may be able to do something. But the news media here are not willing to take them on. Uh, they're not willing to say anything. They're afraid of being sued. We don't have any investigative uh, reporters anymore. Uh, I mean, to say it's all there, written out in black and white. And the news people are afraid to uh, repeat it when it's all there, like I said, right in front of them. And the people of Newfoundland are not informed of what's going on into our healthcare system with these private and confidential contracts. And basically, there's nobody there to help us, and we need somebody. Who's going to be? I don't know. But, you know, we, we need somebody. To your knowledge, Mike, when is the contract up? It's a few years' time yet, I think. It's four or ten years Uh from the knowledge that I got now back a few years ago when it started, it was uh, $30 million for 10 years at $300 million. But they don't say they're written into the contract is that there's raises to the cost of living allowance or the consumer price index or whichever is higher. And they get an 8 or 10% or well, probably not 10%, but I think up now there's something like 8 or something percent every year. So actually hidden away that contract is worth double. Uh, at the end of the 10 years, instead of paying a million dollars per employee, we're going to be paying $2 million per employee. So because that compounded uh, raises every year is escalated to the point that, you know, it, you know nobody else in, in, in the world can get those kind of raises today. Look at our, our uh, everybody else that went on strike and everything, our paramedics. You know, here's the government not looking after their employees, giving them decent, decent increases and everything, but they're giving the the Commerce Group, which don't go back to their employees. The Commerce Group, if you read this uh, broken Commerce scandals, they don't pay their their, their uh, employees fair wages. All of this is going out in profits outside of the province to billionaires that uh, is just sitting back. Oh, boys, they don't even say thank you. So, you know, it's, you know, our healthcare system right now is in 
probably the worst situation that he's ever been. And until the Newfoundlanders, it gets out there that the everyday Newfoundlander understands uh, what's going on, that we need our politicians to inform them, uh, to come out and put out some press releases. Do they support the Commerce Group? Do they support what Eastern Health is doing? But they won't say nothing. They're trying to stay onto the fence. But sooner or later, the fence rots, and they're going to fall off. Which side they're going to fall, I don't know. But uh, it's time for Andrew Fury to come out publicly state, am I wrong or are, uh, is Eastern Health right? And I mean to say, look, if anybody comes out here and says that I'm wrong or does not agree with me onto this or is negative onto it, well, I'm coming back at them and we've got to go to the courts and go to the courts because if somebody says about me what I've said about the government officials and the other people in Eastern Health, I'd have I'd have them in court in a second, but they haven't got the guts to come out and say anything about what I'm saying and try to defend themselves or nothing else because there's no defense for this contract, none whatsoever, for the people in Newfoundland. I appreciate the times for him, Mike. And thank you very much, Patty. But like I said, I'm saying to the people, you got a computer, go in Google, Broker's Compass. Broken Compass, the scandals of Compass Group, and read what it is and find out and go to your politicians. Put the pressure onto them that, look, you know, we're suffering. We've got people out there that are waiting for operations, waiting for everything else. This is all money that could go towards that instead of going to multi-billionaires around the world. Thanks we for the need call. More. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number five. George, you're on the air. Hello. Hi there. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, George. What's on your mind? Okay, uh, I was wondering about uh, parking in uh, at uh, St. Clair's Hospital. Right? I got to go and take a 98-year-old man to the hospital. I'm just curious how, how I pay for that because I don't have tap, I don't have different things so I just wonder if someone or one of your listeners would help me out there in how to uh, navigate this little thing I haven't been to St. Clair's myself in years, so I'm not sure how much has changed uh, at that particular hospital. Let me see if I can find something very quickly for you. Because I know at the health sciences, you simply take the ticket and you pay for it at the kiosk inside. So let's see, your parking payment system updated at St. Clair's Mercy Hospital. Okay, it says here... The, so n- there's no meters on the site at this moment in time. Its parking rate for is at uh, 75 cents per hour. Uh, yeah. Option one, upon arriving at either site, clients can use their smartphone to scan one of the posted QR codes. Or for you, let's see here, you can indeed proceed to one of the pay stations located inside the lobby, enter your license plate number, and the estimated parking time required. So there's a station right inside the door. The station accepts coins, debit card, credit cards, and if you have a smartphone, they have a payment option on it. So you simply go right to that kiosk inside the lobby. Okay, well, I can do that, but uh, I was told that uh, people have been there and trying to pay, uh, but they didn't know how long your estimated time was going to be there. I'm bringing a 98-year-old man in there, so I just want to know, right, how can I pay up front? Can I do? I got uh, 
a bank card and a credit card, the money is not an issue. I'm just curious how I would pay for that. Yeah, you can use your debit card or your credit card or coins right there at that machine just inside the lobby. Okay. Well, I thank you very much. Appreciate it, George. Good luck. I was worried about that, right? Well, you should be okay. Right. Rand Pumphrey was a good friend of mine. Oh, was he? (laughs) Yes, he was, right? And I had spent with him, and I spoke with him a good many times on the radio. But just wanted to, and the poor man is gone, so I said, now how can I deal with this issue I got? Because I'm old man myself, I don't have this, I don't have a, a, I got a credit card, I got a bank card, I got everything, I'm not worried about it, I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> I think you're going to be okay, George. There's a kiosk right inside the lobby there, you should be able to get taken care of right there. All right, thank you, Patty. You're a good friend. I listen to you. My friend, I listen to you. Like I said, when Ryan Pomfrey was on there, I listened to all you guys. I'm just glad that someone could answer my question for me. Thank you. Happy to help you, George. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new mental health and addictions facility. And a visiting member of the UK Parliament is here over the weekend. We're going to get an update from Mickey Brady. He's a member of Sinn Féin for Newry and Armagh. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to uh, the show. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to Mickey Brady, a Sinn Féin MP for Newry and Armagh. Good morning, Mickey. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you for uh, taking me out. I'm happy to have you on the program. Just before we get into the reason for your visit to the province, you know, do you think there's an understanding or misunderstanding about modern-day Sinn Féin? Because back during the Troubles, say, for instance, direct relationship with the Provost, the Provisional Irish Republican Army, of course things changed when Jerry Adams came on the scene and Martin McInnes and the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement and what have you. But the historical context of Sinn Féin, I think, is probably still front and centre in many people's minds. What do you think, Mickey? Yeah, well, I mean, for some people that probably is the case. I mean, um, as far as we're concerned, Sinn Féin are a modern, progressive, left-wing socialist party. Uh, our raison d'etre is and always has been the reunification of our country. We have a lot of, um, we have a very, very good leader at the moment, Mary Lou Macdonald, who will uh, hopefully be the next Taoiseach in the, the uh, Republic of Ireland. And we have a very good leader in the North, Michelle O'Neill, who is the First Minister designate. The problem is, of course, as you know, the Assembly isn't sitting at the moment due to the intransigence of the DUP. Uh, but certainly um, the, the, the notion of that sort of uh, welding of uh, militarism and uh, Sinn Féin, I think that notion has dissipated as years have gone on. And as I said, we are in a position now with the largest party in Ireland. We have uh, elected representatives in all of the 32 counties. So, you know, things have moved on considerably. And you mentioned the DUP, which I'm pretty sure you mean the Democratic Unionist Party, right? Yes, 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 indeed. Okay, Mickey, what were you in town for? Um, basically, uh, uh, the it's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, mm-hmm. and um, I'm here really to um, help uh, celebrate that because the, uh, the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement has brought... Uh, a tr- peace to 
to an end of the conflict that went on for over 30 years and it's worth celebrating and obviously in terms of the input that Canada Canada has been very supportive of our peace process uh, in terms of um, actually input into the International Fund for Ireland General John de Chastelin was very much involved in the decommissioning and ensuring that weapons were decommissioned after the Good Friday Agreement. And of course, we had Judge Curry, who elected uh, many uh, cases for review and recommended that there should be inquiries into a number of cases. That has happened, and the only case really that uh, is outstanding is the one of Pat Finnegan, who was uh, a leading lawyer uh, in, in the North, who was murdered in front of his family by loyalist gunmen. Uh, basically at the behest of of the uh, British agents. So the original signatories to the Good Friday Agreement, I think Tony Blair was the Prime Minister at the time, Bertie Ahern would have been involved, David Andrews would have been involved, Uh, just some names that popped off the top of my mind here while we talk about it. So your presentation or your speech focus on what in particular as we look back over the course of the past 25 years? Basically the uh, effect that the Good Friday Agreement has had uh, in the north of Ireland and how the peace process has uh, evolved. Now obviously there are many aspects of the Good Friday Agreement that are still to be implemented and actually as a, a northern MP I sat on a committee in uh, the Oireachtas in Dublin it's called the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement Committee and our objective is to ensure that all of the uh, aspects of the Good Friday Agreement are implemented there are still some major outstanding parts that have in for instance a of rights and a number of equality issues but um, things are moving forward um, the problem is uh, to go back again to say that there's no uh, assembly sitting at the moment and that is basically from the DEP's point of view a uh, direct result of Brexit now, this is a party who, who campaigned for Brexit and it's kind of backfired on them because when Brexit uh, was um, brought forward. The British government in many ways forgot that there was a British border imposed in Ireland and that in in a very small country, one part of Ireland is uh, not in the EU and the other part is. So it led to obviously particular problems. So now we have what they uh, call a border in the Irish Sea, but essentially what it means is the North has access to both markets, it has access to the single market and uh, you know can deal with a, a market in Europe of 500 million people, but also can deal with the, what they consider the internal market in Britain. So really we have the best of both worlds, but unfortunately um, the DUP cannot say that because they are rendered to this idea of the union which, you know, if you, if you look at it logically, is really of no benefit. Mickey, can you give us some specifics of what is yet to be fully implemented? Sorry? Can you give us some examples of some of the issues that have not yet been fully implemented in under the agreement? And the Good Friday Agreement, well, as I said, there's a Bill of Rights which would uh, give everybody, um, you know, equality in terms of, of their daily lives. Um, the other thing, uh, just one thing in terms of the Good Trade Agreement, there is an inbuilt uh, part of that which says that there can be a, a referendum on unity, uh, mostly referred to as a border poll. There's a bit of an anomaly in that sense because it means that the British Secretary of State at any given time can decide that that poll should be held if they think that um, you know people are up for um, 
voting on that. The problem is we have tried to get successive British Secretaries of State to outline the criteria uh, when and if a border poll should be held. Unfortunately, none of them have given um, any uh, at any particular reason at this point in time why they think a border post should be held and what the criteria should be. The other thing is um, what we want also is the British government and the Irish government who are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement and I would stress it is an international agreement you know, um, lodged at the United Nations so we are asking them in terms of the, the, their function or the responsibility to ensure that all parts of the Good Friday Agreement are implemented and the border poll is actually one of the things that it's not something that is going to happen overnight in terms of the, uh, the leg of a border poll to be put forward we need to sit down and talk we need an Ireland that's going to be inclusive because obviously there are a number of unionists one and a half million approximately who live in the north we need to include everybody Ireland's become over the last years quite cosmopolitan and we want to be inclusive and that everybody you know feels that it's a country that they can um, contribute to and have a better quality of life in. Some of the issues also approach, you know, demilitarising some of the paramilitary groups that were in play, uh, police reform, and the concept of police reform, what exactly was attended to? Well, essentially, um, you had previously the RUC, which um, certainly for nationalist people in the north had an extremely bad reputation. There are a number of cases of collusion where um, innocent people were murdered uh, by loyalist gunmen but at the behest of uh, RUC special ranks and, and others in that sense and I think that there are a number of cases that are well documented. The PSNI um, have replaced the RUC um, and from our point of view I mean we would have uh, reasonably good dealings with the PSNI. I think every society has to have a police force and you know if they do well then you tell them that they're doing well if they're not doing well then you have to hold them accountable so it's again it's, a, it's an evolving process because um, they've only been in place for not that long really and they had a big job to do in replacing the RUC but so far things you know certainly in, in my consistency things are working out reasonably well there's there's a lot of ground still to cover but as I said it's something that we are working hard at and we you know if we will certainly certainly hold them accountable. We have local uh, sort of committees set up that will monitor the, the, the uh, workings of the, the PSNA and then uh, we can have meetings that if things aren't going well, we can, you know, have discussions and say what needs to be done to rectify certain particular problems that are arising, you know. Who invited you over, Mickey? Was it the Friends of Sinn Féin or was there a specific group that invited you? Basically, um, friends of Sinn Féin in Canada, um, and obviously um, it's an opportunity to also um, outline to uh, Canadian people what is happening at home and what needs to happen and how we need uh, their support. And obviously, it's for me, it's great to uh, meet the diaspora. And, you know, what, what we want is the support of the diaspora and indeed the Canadian people. Again, in relation to the leg of Brexit, for instance, the federal government here, have said that unless a good trade agreement is implemented, then there will be no trade deals with Britain. And I think the same has been said in America. It was 
Biden was in Ireland earlier and, you know, made it very clear that the Good Friday Agreement is paramount and has to be, um, you know, implemented. Otherwise, uh, there will be no trade agreements. And obviously, the whole um, issue around Brexit is that Britain needs trade agreements with America and, and it needs trade agreements with Canada and also it needs to maintain a very good relationship even though it's broken away from the European Union Yeah the British really cut off their nose despite their face with Brexit it's certainly not working out as intended yeah, oh, Absolutely absolutely. because I think the difficulty for people in Britain uh, when they voted for Brexit they didn't really know what they were voting for a lot of it was um, issues around xenophobia, racism and, and various other things. For instance, in the North, uh, we actually voted to remain in the European Union by 56% to 44 So for us, there's a democratic deficit. But unfortunately, uh, we were subsumed into the overall British vote. Um, the same Scotland voted to, to remain in the European Union. Mm-hmm. They also were subsumed into that, you know. Uh, Mickey, I appreciate the time. How was your experience here in St. John's? Yeah, great. Um, I've never been to Canada before, so it, it's a pleasure to be here. I've met some great people. The hospitality is wonderful. Obviously, um, the snow waited till I arrived before it actually came. So uh, I suppose I, I, I would have maybe disappointed if I, had, if I had come to Canada and not seen snow. But, um, you know, I've, I've had a great time here, and I'm looking forward to the next day or two. I go back... Um, to Ireland uh, tomorrow evening and I'll be back in Ireland I'll be in Dublin on uh, Wednesday I appreciate you making time for the show safe travels not at all thanks very much thank you take good bye. care bye bye that's Mickey Brady Sinn Féin MP Nuri Armagh uh, let's get another one before we get to the break let's go to one Nicole you're on the air Hello, um, I'm calling because I was at the Mount Pearl Christmas Parade yesterday okay it's the first time I've ever attended, and I was there with my little children, um, and we were outside of St. David's Park there on Ruth Avenue, and it looks like that's a very popular place for people with little children because they get to run around before the parade starts, but I was really surprised that they took so long to close Ruth Avenue. So at 10 o'clock, you know, or before people were starting to line up for the parade, and there's like such um, a a large group of small children there, but the traffic was still heavy and moving fast. And thankfully, there were enough parents around. We were, you know, working together to keep kids out of the road. But even just closing the road 10 minutes sooner would have been a lot safer because, you know, even though there were a lot of us, it just takes one child one second to step out in the road. And of course the kids were excited and they wanted to look down the road to see what was coming. So we were all just really surprised that the traffic was still going until right before the parade came down the street. Yeah, it seems quite strange to me because I know around here the roads are shut down well in advance of the parade actually by making its way down, say, for instance, Water Street. So they'll surprise it happened the way it did in Mount Pro because it's not like they don't understand the logistics and the moving parts regarding the parade. Exactly. And even after the road was closed, we're like, okay, the parade's coming now. The kids started to go out into the road to look for it, and then two cars came whizzing down. It it just, it was very strange. I'm sure it's just an oversight, and I don't know who makes those decisions, if it's the town or the, the police. I'm not sure who actually is in charge of closing the road. But next year, I think it would be wise, especially right there in front of the park, just even 10, 15 minutes sooner would have made a big difference. Have you put this complaint formally forward to the city council? I'm not, I have not. I wasn't sure who to contact about it. 
Um, but I know of a few parents on the street were all saying, like, we should really contact somebody because we did see it as an oversight, of course. Like, people just don't know that that area is so, has so many little children. I'd file it formally with the council so that it's documented and then would be uh, uh, considered for next year's parade. That's what I would do. Okay, great. So I should just email the city council? Yeah, just put it on record as a, a, a noted concern, and maybe they'll include it in their post-mortem of the parade this year and some traffic concerns that should indeed be changed or the focus need to be changed or the timing to be changed next year. So that's what I would do. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. And the parade was lovely. Um, so we were really happy we went, but that was the only issue. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I appreciate the time this morning, Nicole. Wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the fact that there was indeed a four-week extension granted to uh, recipients of employment insurance in certain economic zones, but apparently it hasn't gone far enough. FFAW President Greg Purdy is in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Take a more to the president of the FFAW. That's Greg Purdy. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad this morning. How about you? Good, good, good. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this uh, AI crisis. Yeah, because, I mean, the union was pleading with the federal government for this four-week extension. It was announced in the fall economic statement, but apparently digging into the numbers, it hasn't gone far enough or as far as you'd like it. So where's it coming up short? Well, first of all, we've spent a lot of time over the last number of months uh, traveling to Ottawa, talking to MPs, talking to ministers of labor on the importance of getting this thing right, they have failed. It's, it's gone short by, first of all, they've added four weeks to, to, a, to a claim. If, in fact, you, uh, cl- if you registered uh, a 4EI prior to September. So that's a disservice to um, many fish plant uh, workers in this province. They didn't do anything for harvesters. We laid out an economic plan over the last four or five months. They completely ignored that. And uh, so there's absolutely no assistance or help for, for harvesters in this because they have their own EI pro- uh, situation and they don't, they're not laborers. So, but the, the crisis, here, here's, here's the nub of the issue. Uh, they haven't changed the divisor. We have told countless MPs the importance of having the divisor set back to where it was in 2022, and that's a divisor of 14. Everybody's used to that. What's happened here is they haven't changed the divisor, so as a result, and this can get a bit tricky, as a result of not changing the divisors, having the divisor at 16, for example, your duration on the claim is actually shorter, and your your claim benefit is can be short from about two hundred fifty dollars to four hundred dollars per month, and that's uh, double if in fact your partner uh, is a seasonal worker also. So there's a lot of financial jeopardy in this. It's you know it's tough enough to live in rural Newfoundland or any other part of rural Canada when you have these inflationary issues that are just driving uh, people underground. Then the other issue is, you know, they've had, we've had collectively, we've had our pockets picked by the banks, by gas stations and supermarkets. And now the EI program is picking the pockets of uh, of our members and seasonal workers. And it, it's just not good enough. I, I'm going to ask uh, Minister O'Regan uh, for another meeting uh, with harvesters, with plant workers who are adversely affected. And I don't think adversely covers it because, you know, I call this the dirty 30s. Uh, 
a couple of months ago unless it was fixed. And we're heading into a really rough winter, perhaps the roughest one since Confederation for a lot of our members. Don't forget, many of those plant workers can't even qualify because they did like normal people would do. And that is once the crab was packed, put on a truck and headed off to the States, they, they opened up a claim. So it's it's a misfire on, on many angles, and they need to fix it. Yeah, the cutoff day was September the 10th. Maybe I'm just stunned. So if we're talking about 55% of the average of your top earning weeks, when we'll go back to the divisor conversation, the uh, move from 14, 16 to 14 that you're looking for, why would there be any change in the average of your best earning weeks just taking those two weeks uh, out of the equation? Because most people get four, 14 weeks. Most people would get to 14 weeks employment in uh, seasonal plants between crab and other other uh, fisheries. And of course, when the crab uh, finished, uh, it, it, you're talking 14 weeks. So, and once if you change it, if that's your divisor on your on your annual income it, from the fishery, then if it, once it goes to 16 uh, as a divisor, then it lowers the benefit substantially. Okay, so looking for another meeting with the Minister of Labour, and of course that is Seamus O'Regan, and we'll see if they recognize what you're calling or describing as a misfire. Uh, Another issue I wanted to talk about this morning, Greg, is we know that there's going to have to be some way, some change in the way that the price is established. Where are we in the progress for, you know, coming up with a new formula? Everyone's pretty sure it's just going to boil back down to what percentage of the market price will be forwarded to either side. So where are we? Well, you know, we've had a a pretty decent uh, report. The Blackwood report um, was uh, excellent in that it identified a number of issues that the current system is is, uh, deficient. It's faulty. It doesn't work properly. I've been saying that for months, as you know. It also called for a a crab marketing uh, board, and you know I've called for that also. And, And I said there's a better way to do business. So where are we now? I, the parties have accepted. Uh, the uh, the main recommendation report is that we should have a formula. So the parties have accepted that. The province uh, is obviously in favour of it, and we have started uh, talks with the uh, with AST on this issue to date. Patty, to be to be fair, it's like two sumo wrestlers circling each other in the ring. But uh, our intent, and both parties stated intent is to have this done uh, and try to hit those targets of uh, January 2000 and January 2024. So if there's, you know, some level of agreement in places how it has to change, does that mean that the province has to put the final stamp on it? Nothing happens until the province, you know, because they've said quite clearly, unless everyone agrees with it, we're just going to have to continually go back into the meeting rooms and try to figure it out. So does that what what's required, a final say from government? Well, I guess the, the real issue here is what the government will... Uh, except as recommendations and what they're ready to move on. And they, they haven't done that, and I think it's just a matter of timing. Uh, we have uh, met with the province uh, on the issue, and uh, I think they have too. So the government will make a decision at some point uh, uh, in the near future as to what their intention is to do, what, what it is they're going to do with the recommendations. I, mean, I hope, I hope that... Uh, like everybody else, or most people in the province, uh, they, and I know the Premier does, sees a need for a formula in this. The Minister of Labour is in favour, and I'll talk to Minister of Fisheries on. So, you know, we have a good crew 
that are lined up in support of this thing. But yeah, we have to work out the details, and and of course the devil's in the details. And you're quite right. I mean, it's going to take some work, but uh, we're prepared to do that. And so far, ASP has said uh, roughly the same thing. I appreciate the time. Anything else this morning, Greg? No, Patty, uh, thanks very much. Uh, I, I, I want to say just the other thing I'd, I'd like to say is that uh, in meeting with the, uh, the two ministers, Fisheries and Labor, and talking to the Premier on this, look, they are very much in support of fixing this EI. So, you know, that's a lot of weight behind this, and I, I just uh, hope that the feds can see the error of their ways and start representing these individuals. We appreciate the four weeks but it's just a half measure unless you go the full route and fix that problem. And ultimately, the long-term, Petty, is a complete re- uh, reform of, uh, of EI. It doesn't work anymore uh, properly. It doesn't cover pandemics, as you know. It doesn't cover market crashes. It doesn't cover brand, you know, these brand-new workplaces that we're into. And it doesn't uh, cover uh, tech issues. So it's it's outdated. It needs work, and uh, I've already committed uh, our union to working with the feds to making sure that's a more meaningful uh, system going forward. So thanks for your time, Soaring. Really appreciate it. I appreciate yours, Greg. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That's Greg Pretty. He's the president of the FFAW. Let's take a break. When we come back, Sean wants to talk about healthcare. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. Good. Uh, Patrick, uh, yesterday evening, uh, late, I guess with the national news, Dr. Isaac Bogosh of the University Health Network in Toronto, who's a very popular guy and very popular uh, across the news media for since COVID began. Before that, we never heard of him. But he was talking last night about something very serious that I think affects this province as well. And we have uh, the gig economy, and we have uh, we also have a lot of people going to work every day that uh, they don't show up, they don't get paid. And my big concern is coming into this season that if they're going to work anyway because they're sick, but but they have to go, they have to pay their bills, they have to pay their mortgage, their car payment, whatever. Uh, it's a big problem. And uh, you know, when the COVID first hit and the government of Canada uh, kicked in, uh, you know, some backup money for for the people that are going to work without. Uh, or that at least they'd be covered if they couldn't go to work because um, they're sick. Uh, you know, it was it was covering off trying to, you know, uh, keep COVID under wraps and and keep as few people as we can dealing with it. But now that's all changed, and uh, it's, it's really concerning. And Bogosh hit it right on the nail last, or the nail right on the head last night, talking about the fact that uh, that people are going to be making the decision to go to work. They they have to go to work. So I'm I'm pleading right now with provincial government, federal government, uh, to have a really really close look right away, as urgent as what uh, Greg was just talking about then with the uh, with your. Uh, uh, fishing community uh, and their issues, but this is really serious. If people are going go to go to work sick, that means the people at work are going to get sick. That means the clients that come into work, whether it's restaurants or anything else, uh, are, are probably going to get sick, and we're going to have a big problem in our hands. So the people are going out just to socialize. They won't be they, like they won't go to work. 
because they can be paid probably going into work, uh, or sorry, without going into work. But the people who don't get paid going to work, they're going to go to work anyway. What are you suggesting should be done? Well, like, we, we, we've got to find a way of compensating the people who are very sick to keep them home when they're sick so they don't spread it everywhere. And spread anything, whether it's RSD or, the, you know, the flu or COVID or anything else. And we're getting hit with all of it this year. I mean, all three of it's hitting and hitting really badly. I mean, like, like, you, like, like, you, like I'm sure you've been out around a lot and, and you're hearing the hacking and coughing from people. Uh, I sing in a couple of choirs and one of the guys in that choir said he's never felt this this way. Uh, it's stuck on his lung and he doesn't seem to get rid of whatever he's got. And uh, but, you know, the, the, the big issue is I'm not seeing a lot of mask wear. Uh, around the community, but um, around the province. But it is a big problem if you've got sick people having to go to work because they won't get paid if they don't. You know, we really have very little idea about uh, the prevalence of anything out there, seasonal flu, RSV, COVID, or what have you, because we just don't test anymore. And, you know, there's arguments about how the effect of some of the tests were, but the one constant has been wastewater testing. And if you look at the most recent numbers, it's pretty high. I mean, there's pretty high prevalence of any of these respiratory illnesses out there, and COVID in particular, as the numbers are clearly showing. So I know a handful of people who are really ill at this moment, and I don't know exactly what they've got, but they are sick. And, I mean, I really don't know what's going to change here. So are you suggesting that the provincial government put some sort of backstop in place? I think we need something. You know, like, look, you can't let people go to work without being paid. Uh, so, you know, like, we've got to cover them somehow, or else we're going to have a bigger issue. If we think the tent city is bad, I mean, we're going to see kids out there next with their, uh, with their young, young parents uh, because, you know, people have, have to have money to pay their bills. So I'm suggesting that, if, like, like, if we're not going to do something about this right away, before this thing gets so prevalent, as you just just rightly said, the uh, the wastewater is you know you know is telling the tale, isn't it? So, and Bogosh was really high on this last night. I mean, he he really nailed it, you know, calling out to the federal government to deal with it or provincial government to deal with it in some way, so we don't make the matter a crisis in a couple of weeks' time. The political calculations are obviously well understood as well. Is you know not about uh, backstops or financial support, but there will be zero political appetite and or public appetite for any restrictions. It's just not going to happen. Whether it's required, the right thing or the wrong thing to do, it's not going to happen because of what we just learned. Uh, I appreciate the time, Sean. Thanks for this. And, and if I can say one more thing, on that point, you're absolutely right. Re- restrictions are out the window, so we have to keep people home. If they need to be paid, we got to figure out a way to pay them. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen there, but, of course, the message has always been, and regardless of this, let's go back to 2019, you know, we're long told, if you're sick, please stay home out of it. So with the rising pressures that people are facing at the, with their wallets, maybe some poor decisions will be made as to whether or not they stay home or go to work or go to the party. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Moya. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. <laughs> are you a Moya or a Moira? I'm a Moira. Moira, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm not saying Moira. I'm identifying as Moira from Roddington. Um, I'm a vulnerable human woman (laughs) in Canada. 
I'm 62 and a half years old, Patty, and I'm getting the Canadian disability pension of $794 a month. And then I get income support from CSSD here in the province, $9.26 every two weeks. I don't see that money. It goes to hydro to keep my unsafe hydro on. Um, I'm disabled. I'm 62 and a half years old. I'm going to be 63. I'm in that category that the Premier talked about, where we need to have a different income stream for seniors that are in this predicament, because as soon as you go and try to collect your pension because you're 60 and you think you're going to get a little bit more money, you'll get more than the $610 they expect you to live on a month, and they'll cut you off your income support. And they won't pay for your shelter. And I guess that's why I'm really calling, because I'm living in a tent too, Patty. I'm living in a tent in my home. I'm glamping. It's beautiful glamping, I must say. But I don't have access to any basic needs. I don't have access to anything. It's all held up through NLHC, which is run by the same Blinken minister. You know this, CSSD, uh Mr. Pike, and you're not even allowed to talk to him. The only way I can communicate with anybody at Income Support is to email them. They won't accept even a phone call from me because I'm so bad. I can be a real tit, apparently, sometimes. And it's like, but I don't know how long I've been going through this. Your chap said to me the other day on the phone, God bless him, because I called in Friday. Like, I've called you once a year on a Friday in a panic state about how am I going to survive another winter in this community where it may be beautiful to come and see, but it's not very beautiful to live in it. We don't even have safe water to drink. I have no home care. They took away my home care. They took away my snow clearing. I'm hungry in this community because I can't get a care provider to come into my home because I would not be in compliance with all of the laws that govern a caregiver. They just raised their wages, seventeen five. It's not safe. It's three degrees in my home right now. Why did you lose your home care? I'm losing my home care because it's not fit for my home care to come into my house. It's only three degrees in my house. And I don't have, it's not safe. It, the electrical is not safe. And the government tagged it through NLHC, and they will not pay to get it fixed, and nobody will give me my assessments that I need. I've had all my assessments. I've had all this money approved, and they're not helping me. And and because I kept begging and asking for help, and because they made a couple of concessions, uh, they thought, you know, they could just, like, shut me out of their care list. And last year, I never thought I could survive a winter, and I did. And I was sure I was going to get this solved this year, and I can't. And, I mean, this is nuts. I can't live like this anymore. Do you know, Patty, they're talking about toilets downtown at the tent city. Like, I want to go there just to say to those people, like, wow, like, I know where you're too because this has been a passion of mine for a long time. Part of my journey here was to combat uh, 
the homelessness and the vulnerable sector, the lack of care that they have in this province. Like, that is a true story. And it's like, I've seen so much of it. I'm being tortured as a result of it because I I got involved with it, right, as a home care provider and providing needs for people. I'm the same woman that brought the chap that has a human rights complaint right now that I'm not allowed to work because I'm a person with a disability. They took away my comfort allowance of $150 a month. Deb Pelly told me herself at Lavender Grand Fall Health because I have an income, which is my Canadian disability pension, of $794 a month, no drug care. Remember last year I called in and, and I got some angel and she helped me and I got my Viagra covered? And that has gotten me through this year. And now I got a new prescription from my doctor, which I don't even have a doctor. It's just a call in somebody you don't even know. I begged the internist for it. And I got it. And I don't have the money to pay for that. I would have been able to pay for that with my comfort allowance of 150 bucks. But Lavender Grenfell Health took that away from me because the province says they have a policy that says if you get a Canadian disability pension, you don't get your pharmacare. Like, this is nuts. It certainly sounds like a terrible situation, uh, Moira. Are there any supports, period, like even in the community itself, as opposed to the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation or any of the uh, pots of money that you avail of with the province? Or are there any additional supports that you can take advantage Absolutely of in Roddington? Absolutely zero. Absolutely zero in Roddington. In Ro- Roddington is part of the problem. Their town council didn't, the town council didn't get the tax interest and they took away my water and started the whole water gong show. Like, that's the town of Roddington, Mayor Deputy Della DeMoss. Like, I mean, this is a true story. We have no food bank here. They changed the rates for a senior. We talked about the rate of seniors. Well, before a senior is, if somebody like me, I'm 63, I'm still considered, well, I'm going to be 63 in July. I'm in my 63rd year. I'm still considered a senior because I'm in receipt of home care. I'm eligible for two and a half hours of home care a day, but they didn't care. They cut off my water and said we're not going to let anybody come in there and bath you we're not going to let you have a toilet and guess what if you go and do anything bad like turn your water back on so that you can have these basic human rights that we think you like don't deserve uh we're going to cut your sewer line we're going to literally come in there with our big equipment we're going to get randy from canada bay down here and we're going to cut your sewer line i don't know why any of these things would be happening the way you describe it all sounds so strange and sad to me moira i hope you're well and hopefully anyone who can help at the government level and or the municipal level will do something on your behalf after hearing this call i wish you well thank you take care moira okay bye-bye uh let's take a break don't go away welcome back uh let's go to line number two good morning bill murphy you're on the air hello hello hey penny i just called back you know uh, last week because i wanted to be a little clearer from uh uh, what I was talking about last week. Okay. Okay. Uh, I was uh, basically now there's a meeting Thursday night, and it's my contention 100% that uh, there's two councillors suspended uh, contravening the law. And before the meeting on Thursday, 
I just want uh, I, I, I want to put out there because there's, there's going to be another meeting and the, the, the uh, it may it be adjourned again because I have my paperwork I have my homework done and it's so it's just Thursday and I listened to uh, Nathan on uh, last week and I actually spoke to the man and Okay, just so people know what we're talking about, Bill, once again, we're talking about Long Harbor Council. Long Harbor, Mount Arctic Mount, yes, sir. Okay. And uh, so <clears throat> there's a public meeting on Thursday. I'm trying to get legal uh, legal authorities involved. I, I really think it should go in front of a magistrate, but uh, we'll see. And uh, But anyway, Thursday's the meeting. I'm quite sure I'm accurate in... The, the the code of conduct that they were uh, that was written by how it was written uh, by whom it was written it doesn't live up to the rule of law and that's it's as simple as that and where the where the town's business is not getting done uh, I, and I, unequivocally I do stand by my statement that right now. Uh, uh, the the council that sits right now is dysfunctional, and they can they can dis uh, spin it however however they may, and uh, it's uh, I mean I, I just put okay. So you're asking people if they'd like to come to the public meeting on Thursday evening. Is that the summary here, Bill? Absolutely, a hundred percent. But okay. I'm also I'm also pleading with the sitting members of council to. Uh, to go through the meeting, get the town's business done, and get over this just wanting to be right when you're not. Fair enough. So it's Thursday evening in Long Harbor, public meeting, and we'll see what comes of it. I appreciate the time, Billy. Hopefully people, if they're interested, will show up. Thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bill Murphy is the counselor out in Long Harbor. Let's go to line number three. Clyde, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning, Clyde. Yeah, how you doing, Penny? That's kind, you? Uh, not so good with the uh, snow clearing up this way in Beyond Peninsula so far this uh, winter. Uh, and uh, we had a bit of trouble there. Like, I sent you a picture of that bus that uh, went sideways there. That was over in Spanish Room, just over from Rock Harbor. And there was another one went off up in uh, Winterland. That's just up from us. And uh, she was off the next day before they got her back on. So I don't know if they dropped the ball or they had uh, mechanical problems or what at that time. But uh, And so these issues happened in the course of the regular daylight hours, right? Right. Uh, there was That snow started last week, what we had here. We must have had at least uh, 25 or 30 centimeters here on Bjorn Peninsula. And uh, there was near player come out this way until 6.30 that evening after all day. Usually in that patio, I've got to say, every other year they use V8 a couple of times a day. I don't know what happened there, but, uh, and then we got the issue too of uh, black ice, especially this time of the year, and that right, we had a incident up here where we had the fatalities there a couple of weeks ago, and that was seven o'clock in the morning. I mean, the players should have been up and out and solved the 
roads by this time, you know. We asked the minister responsible directly about that particular issue and investigating as to whether or not it was the lack of snow clearing and or ice management led to that accident and consequently the death. So that's something we put directly to him. And then, you know, there's the concept that people are still worried about is there's no such thing as 24-hour uh, highway depot service anymore, right? Which kind of comes across as a bit confusing to me because the snow doesn't care what time it is. And secondly, they talk about, well, the service is available if there's an emergency. But let's say an ambulance gets deployed. So then you call to try to get a plow out on the road. But the ambulance, if it's actually a real emergency, time is the trick, is the key. So I don't quite get the rationale as how they say, well, it's not really anything to worry about because if there is an emergency, we'll put a plow on the road. So I don't really understand how they work together. No, I don't understand that, Patty. You're going to time when something could happen to you medically, right? You know, and the roads are not fit. How are they going to get to you? And my, my beef is with it this. I mean, we got weather all around. We can see when the weather's coming, right? It don't have to be. It can be 24-hour service, but it don't have to be all the time. You know what I mean? Sure. You have people coming in on that overtime, knowing that the roads are going to be icy. Probably temperature is going to drop like... Uh, I drive back and forth. That was back and forth to uh, come by chance last year, the whole winter and that, right? And they do come out and look at the roads and that, but like I say, when the little snow comes, you never see the plow handling. And it's uh, and it's the working people that that's putting the money into the government. Just let them hear this. The working people are putting the money into the government. They're risking their lives to go to work to pay the bills and pay the taxes, right? Because there's a lot of people... Uh, like, I work uh, out in Visey Bay right now. Every two weeks, I'm going on that road. Uh, could be early in the day or early in the morning. A lot of people go early in the morning where there could be black ice, you know what I mean? And there should be better service for the times that you know the weather's coming bad. Just get get the flies out there and get a sand at the end. Fair enough. I mean, again, because the weather doesn't really care what time the depot has the staff on. But when the, you know, we can't always get the weather forecast 100% right 100% of the time. But when we know there's a heightened risk for ice, then ice management is pretty important responsibility for the provincial government and everyone working in that highway depot division. Uh, before we get to the news, Clyde, anything else you want to add to it? Well, like I say, there's people going back and forth to come by chance. There's people out in their ginches still working. These are all good paying jobs, and there's a lot of people uh, going back and forth to Rosie Bay. There's five plane trips every day, five days a week, so there's always people commuting from Newfoundland to there. And like I say, the safety shouldn't be an issue. The money shouldn't be an issue. And if uh, they can't get the operators, they should pay more because I'm sure they'd stay home and operate here without having to go away, you know, if money's the issue too. Yeah. So, uh, just send that message to the Premier and them that uh, we're, we're trying to make a living and we're trying to pay our taxes, so we want their service. I appreciate the time, Clyde. Okay, Thanks for the thank call. Thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. Take care. Be safe. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. Uh, just very quickly before we get to the news, today might be a good day to get on the program, but, you know, I, I might be in the minority of people trying to get some more information about the ongoing negotiation between the province and the province of Quebec regarding uh, the Upper Churchill. I think it gets further complicated when now uh, 
Premier Legault, his political, his polling numbers are way down. Does that mean that it might be tougher and tougher for us to get what we deserve and a so-called political victory and a financial victory regarding whether it be redress from 69 or what the next 17 years look like or what 41 itself looks like? But with Legault struggling, does that mean that it's going to be more and more difficult to get what we think we actually and absolutely do deserve here regarding redress or consideration financially and otherwise regarding that upper Churchill contract. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, ton of time left for you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. One of the calls early in the program from a gentleman named Herb. He's a retired veteran. So he's talking about the willingness that he has, maybe others, I've got a couple of emails since, for folks who are willing to put their skills to work to try to build some shelter for the folks that are living in that tent city. So apparently there's something being worked on at this moment in time. There's a bunch of people working with some community groups, looking for some money, and maybe some of the horsepower like Herb was willing to put forward. So... If you have the capacity and you've got some of these skills, whether it be as a, a carpenter or someone who does uh, electrical work or something like that, there's something being worked on. So I'm happy to help that group, you know, compile some names. So if you want to send along an email, like a couple other gentlemen have done since Herb called, to say they're willing to do exactly that as well. So I'll help funnel your contact information to the folks who are organizing that effort if you're so inclined. So that's the call being put out there. And you don't have to be a retiree. If you've got some time to put forward, whether it be on a weekend or whatever the case may be. We'll see how that's all developing with those community groups that are trying to work towards putting something in place. So if you want to send us your contact information, we'll get it to them. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Nelson. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. Good day to you. Uh, Patty, uh, what I'm calling about today, I'm been very honored. I'm a mariner. You know, I work on, on ships and I... Uh, the other day I met a friend of mine, a Ukrainian friend. He's after having, he's on a ship, he's on a ship now as a captain. He's probably on his way to Poland now because that's, that's where he was driven to after his house was blown up and his, uh, and his, uh, he had apartment buildings that he was renting for looking for a future retirement because you know in Ukraine retirement is not very much. And he was looking forward to, to, uh, Matter of fact, I probably knew his captain. Uh, his father was a captain too, you know, and uh, I met him probably over the years. Anyhow, uh, he he cried, you know. When I I piloted a ship out of the port on the northeast coast, and uh, and when I uh, when I was getting out the ship, he came. He said, "I'm getting out the ship now in about two two weeks' time." He said, "And I don't know where I'm going to go." He said, "I said you're going to go home." No, he said, "I don't have a home to go to." I'm going to Poland where my wife and my 10-year-old son is too. I got a 20-year-old, 21-year-old daughter in uh, Kiev in uh, Ukraine. She's working there, and I'm worried about her because any day her life could be taken. So I mean, and when he when he left, he cried. He actually a grown man. Tears came down his eyes. Well, that's because uh, it's it really, sad it stuff. Really, it really hurt me, and I said, "Well, really, something got to be done about this." You know what I mean? Well, something should be done about this. I mean, uh, and I said to him, "What is the cause of all this?" He said, "Only because of one man, Putin." 
Yeah, no, people will debate exactly what is going on and what accurate information, what, pardon me, what information is coming out regarding its accuracy or what have you. I do know that just in the last day or two, w- uh, Russia withdrew the deal to allow uh, Black Sea export of Ukrainian grain. So that has stalled some 7 million tons of cargo because of that decision. It's remarkable, though, to me that the war in Ukraine got all the media attention for quite a long time. Now you don't hear very much about it at all because the focus is on Gaza, of course. That is that is correct. That is correct. That, that bothers me as well, you know. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, I don't, uh, Patty, do we have a, a international police force? I, I always thought that after the Second World War, when the UN was set up, that's what the UN was supposed to be, an international police force to stop bullies like from Russia going in and threatening those little small countries, you know? Yeah, when countries contribute their military to uh, the blue helmet work that the UN does, it's more in the role of peacekeeper versus the actual outfit that can stand up to uh, military such as Russia's. So there is no actual technical world police force, and that's probably a good thing, I would imagine. But something is going to have to give. Uh, and I don't think there's been enough discussion about just what a peace looks like, you know, and the off-ramps to see this conflict come to an end. You know, people simply talk about, well, what you should do is uh, NATO should back off and Ukraine should, you know, offer the concessions that are being demanded of by the Russians. But conceding and the an appeasement plan sounds like a terrible idea. What's to say that if there or is this a set appeasement offered that Putin and the Russians stop there? I mean, there's every indication that they're not going to stop until they get everything they want. So I, I don't know where this ends. That's what that's what the captain. That's what he feels. He feels Russia is not going to stop until they can take take over Ukraine completely. You know. Yeah, I, I don't I don't pretend to know no. uh, exactly what is anybody's intentions. But if you read the history uh, behind Putin's reign then it's quite clear to me that if, let's just say, you know, territory they hold today will be given to them and the war and fighting stops there, I don't think he stops until he gets everything. So, no. you know, it's, it's amazing yeah. how many Putin apologists are out there as well. That's right. That's right. That's true. But anyhow, I mean, what comes in my mind then, you know what I mean? I know there's a lot of people in the world, there's a lot of people in the world who do not agree with war. Of course. Solving, for solving problems, and I'm one of those people. I think that in this day and age, in modern time and age, and I think probably it will come to that when our great-grandchildren probably becomes an, our great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren of other people all over the world come together, and they may be able to stop wars, you know. But, uh, oh, but right now, um, and, and this is something I want to put out to people, I think that Every, anybody who do not agree with wars should come together and form a force and go into those countries and whatever I volunteer to lead to go into those countries with white flags and walk in front of those Russians or whoever else is fighting say okay boy, stop this, stop this and, and, and negotiate and negotiate what you want. No? Do not use force. Try to negotiate rather than use force. 
diplomacy has proven fruitless in many of these conflicts. Uh, Nelson, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for calling. But anyhow, if anybody wants to call me uh, and get a get a get a, sure. a group of people sure. against war to go and march on Ukraine and even in in Egypt and over wherever there is wars to to march on to say the time it's time to stop war, you know, and okay. and and get peace and. Use, uh, use, negotiate diplomacy rather than uh, fighting, no? Thank you, Nelson. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. You're welcome. Right. Bye-bye. Uh, you know, and you mentioned Ukraine. The story that was going around some while ago, and I don't know if this has actually happened, but remember the story where the lady said, though, you know, given cost of living issues, the inability to find a home and all those things, she was going back to Ukraine, back to the war, versus stay here. That's quite the statement about the state of affairs many people are experiencing here in uh, the province today. In addition to that, you know, again, some of the overwhelming stories you hear are coming from Gaza or Ukraine or Lebanon, and there's lots of places in Africa that are war-torn at the exact same time. It's just unreal. I saw a death count num- number coming from Gaza this morning, 15,500. I mean... <laughs> And again, you talk about off-ramps and uh, pathways to peace, whether it be in Ukraine or Gaza, it's certainly way above my geopolitical knowledge as to how these conflicts come to an end because it's just raging, you know. And even some of these uh, pauses for people to be able to evacuate, that's not working how I was intended either, you know. Anyway, those are complicated issues. And I sometimes, you know, I try to at least stay in tune enough to have a base knowledge of what's going on. But with everything else you hear and everything else you see and the stories that are communicated to me on a daily basis, sometimes it's just too much. All right, uh, let's go see what's happening on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefvocm.com. But as you know, my fave is when you pick up the phone, get in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance. 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jocelyn. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Good, good. Yeah, just calling in. Appreciate the time to um, remind people um, that the St. John's Elk Lodge 245 on Carpathian Road is uh, holding its 58th annual Christmas raffle. Starts tonight, goes on for four nights. Uh, it starts at six, it goes to nine. And there's a win with every spin. The prizes include turkeys, ham, salt beef, beverage certificates, and, and we have some things for kids because some people bring their kids. Um, the proceeds raised this year's event will be going to support uh, local charities. Thrive, the Jimmy Pratt Outreach Center, Warm Bellies with the Boys and Girls Club, Atlantic Hope, and um, uh, also the Royal Purple Fund for uh, Children, which, uh, just to tell your listeners, that uh, that's a, a national thing, but we have been able to access for 10 uh, ch- children as uh, a family who have been displaced by fire. Um, they have gotten five and given us $500 for uh, for uh, these families, and we've helped over 10 families uh, to access those funds this year. So it's all for a good cause, and it's also uh, a lot of fun. 
so uh, where you're saying bring a turkey size reusable shopping bag so uh, when you win you got something to take it home in sounds like a good idea so what's the membership look like at the Elks Club these days well, we're up over a hundred. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's obviously some that are more active than others, but we've had a, a really great year in terms of um, trying to get us back in a good financial position. Because prior to that, with COVID and everything, keeping the doors open, as many charities and non not for profits were working towards. But um, we've actually been able to do a lot of. Uh, renovations to the physical plant. Now, the big thing now is that we're trying to um, access funds to make it fully accessible, which is a big priority for for the lodge. So, uh, yeah, we're still alive and kicking, and uh, we're over 90 years young now. So, uh, but the big goal now is to really be able in this year to improve how we can support community groups, community partnerships. We've been able to donate space to people um, of various groups that come down and use the space, and um, and we're looking to expand that in the coming year. The Elks Lodge is a great space itself. Nice little pub yeah. area, and then the main area with the stage is really a good spot to see a show or to have a party. I've been to a birthday party there in the recent past, as a matter of fact. So that's good. So how much are tickets on the spins? Oh, uh, the dollar, well, it, sometimes you, we have two spins, but generally, uh, you know, you get might get three for two. And, you know, it depends. They, they change. But okay. It's quite reasonable. And, you know, the, uh, you can come and have a beverage and bring your family. And, um, yeah, it's, um, and it's a lot of fun. You know, I don't think I used to go, go to the one down on Water Street, but there's not too many raffles going on anymore. But, uh we're, we're, we're glad to be able to continue this tradition. A lot of people love going to the Christmas old-timey raffle. So it begins this evening at 6 p.m. at the Elks Lodge on Carpathian Road. It runs for the next four nights. It does. Good stuff. Good luck okay. with it. All right. Thanks for your time, Patty. Anytime, Appreciate Jocelyn. You okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, of course, and the raffle that operated on Water Street for all those years was the Mount Cashel raffle, and of course, that went away. It wasn't that long ago, it was a number of years ago, but the Autism Society took over a space on Water Street to have an old-timey Christmas raffle as well, a pretty huge success, if I remember correctly. I was down there working it a couple of days, so anyway, people enjoy those types of things. An opportunity to win your Christmas turkey? Not bad. Win your Christmas ham? Sounds about right. There was a story that I read this morning that I didn't include to the opening remarks. But when you look at some communities that have, we'll call professional fire services. Now, the only difference between the volunteer firefighters and the professionals, say, working at St. John's Regional Fire Department, is the paycheck, because the training is very similar, and of course, the uh, incidents that they respond to are also uh, exactly the same. Well, uh, based on magnitude and scale. There is an issue up in Cartwright, and I bet you that that community is not alone when they're talking about the tough time that they're having trying to get volunteers to be firefighters in the community. So, let's see here. The, they're quoting Deputy Chief Chair Uh, Terry Gullage. As of early uh, November, the department had about 10 people, but a bunch of them are shift workers, so not always available. Then they go on a pretty aggressive recruitment drive. So a bunch of people have contacted the department up in Cartwright. But only three were under 58 years of age. None were under 30. There's only a population of some 427 people in Cartwright, and there's an estimated 195 over the age of 50. All those numbers are according to Statistics Canada. So folks in Cartwright, and I would imagine, as I said, 
don't imagine they're alone as volunteer groups. So, I mean, we see service organizations looking for new members, young members to come in and backfill some of the folks who have moved on. Same thing I would imagine with things like fire de- uh, volunteer fire departments. Just imagine, you know, the pride of community and the bit of courage it takes to want to be a firefighter, especially when we're talking about as a volunteer. So that's a story come from Cartwright. And if that's the same for the volunteer fire hall where you live, let's put that on the radar as well, because I know the chatter will be active in the community to ensure that there's a full complement to firefighters that may indeed have to respond. But if you, let's say there's a bunch of shift workers and they only have three people available to uh, uh, respond to a call, they won't be able to do it. And that's not me saying it. That's actually coming from the Deputy Chief, Terry Gullidge. Another bit of investigative work done over at CBC, Rob Antle, Ariana Kellen, and others. It was about 15 months ago, we remember the flash fire that resulted in a death. You know, it took weeks later for the f- young fellow to die, and there's some, seven others were injured. So now the investigation continues. What's being talked about, though, is the fact that they were g- able to get little to no information. There was a couple of reports released, and they were heavily redacted. But now the Crown is saying that they want the information about the ongoing investigation into the, uh, the flash fire to be uh, kept close to the vest. So they don't want any more information released. And what they say is that there's concerns about not only privacy issues, but people's identities being revealed. So there might be personal or financial ramifications. So I guess the insinuation is if some folks who have been interviewed as witnesses, they may indeed see their potential for their job to be on the line. I guess that's how this reads when you read between the lines. There haven't been any charges laid. There's been three search warrants executed at the come-by-chance facility. Of course, people, nobody calls it the Briar Renewable Fuel Facility, but that's so we're not going to hear a whole lot more information as of yet anyway. So there's been a bunch of experts required, but none have been retained. So the folks who are doing the investigations, they say this is kind of outside of their knowledge wheelhouse, and so they're probably going to have to bring in some experts. But 15 months later, and we're not really sure exactly what happened, whether there was any negligence at play, Brea will tell you, like every organization, especially when we talk about industrial settings, that safety would be their priority. But of course, this happened. And we've got to get down to a full understanding as to exactly what went to it. So the RCMP investigation continues. And so here's a quote coming, or this in an affidavit. RCMP Constable Branton Langley said that during discussions with witnesses and victims, several persons expressed concerns over losing their job as a result of cooperating with police and providing statements. So because of that, that the Crown is saying they want these uh, this additional information to be not available to the public at this time until I suppose there's a conclusion and we'll see whether or not there will ever be a charge laid in that extremely sad story because as we remember uh, the young fellow who eventually passed away in hospital, his name is Sean Peddle so, and seven others were seriously injured in that incident at that facility. And so someone just uh, sent an email along saying, what did I say about Quebec and the Upper Churchill? Not a whole lot. It's just that we don't really have any information about exactly what's going on. We know what we're, they're likely discussing in these negotiations. The comment I made is that now that we know of Premier Legault, his poll numbers are really quite low. So does that complicate an already complicated process? Will the province of Quebec, under Legault's leadership, be willing to do as what they kind of said they were willing? 
willing to do. You know, Legault and Quebec came to us. Premier Legault visited the province, met with Premier Fury, talked about the uh, fact that the contract is unfair because it's patently unfair. You know, it kind of flies in the face of the fact that seven different times this has been adjudicated in court. We've lost every single time, even though now the province admits clearly that it is unfair. So that was the thoughts that maybe this gets a bit more complicated and sticky because, you know, Legault can't afford to do anything that's going to put him in further hot water with the voting public in Quebec because, make no mistake, the vast majority of the public in the province of Quebec are happy enough to be the major and the primary beneficiaries of that particular contract. So does that mean that Legault, maybe this kind of stalls out some of the ongoing conversation? I was told a little while ago, you know, a bird whispered in my ear, and this person's actually based in Ottawa, but is privy to some of the ongoing discussions. You know, there's going to be obviously a little bit of leakage coming out of any of these types of uh, ongoing discussions. And this person told me that he thinks that there's a deal imminent that maybe not completely done, but they're right up against it. And you know, and in this province, there is an absolute need for if there's going to be any movement made on this file at all, we have got to see some financial shot in the arm here. So that's a political issue for sure, but for the people of the province that many, many of you listening to the program this morning will have built-in distrust, mistrust of the province of Quebec and, of course, of Hydro-Quebec because of the obvious. We haven't necessarily been in good stead. And people really are displeased when I say things like this, but we actually have no choice but to work with Quebec. I mean, even if you just back out hydro, uh, just the Labrador trough and all the minerals therein and the geographical relationship between the province of Quebec, it's just how we're going to have to move forward in the future. Now, it doesn't mean we just sign every deal that comes our way. No, no, no. We've got to be absolutely proceeding with caution, due diligence in ensuring that it's mutually beneficial as opposed to the very one-sided contract regarding the upper Churchill, and it's, what, 5,400 megawatts of hydroelectricity at that particular facility. Okay, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in, serving the folks, Mount Pearl, Southlands, Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Doing okay. How are you doing? I'm not doing bad at all. Patty, uh, I just wanted to uh, talk about, um, I guess, the concept of uh, accountability and how that might apply or maybe not apply uh, in many cases in government, and, of course, the negative impact that could have uh, uh, to the population in general, to taxpayers and so on. Um, and, you know, I, I, can, I can look at so many examples uh, of where we have not seen accountability uh, in government. And I think back, for example, to when we had Derek NL, and the Liberty Report comes out and says we didn't do basic maintenance uh, on, the, uh, on, on our electrical system, and of course, the CEO comes out at the time, uh, and uh, because everybody got their big corporate bonuses, and the CEO said, "Well, we had a good safety record." And then that was the end of that one. We had the Muskrat Falls inquiry. We've seen uh, what came out of that. We've seen all the golden handshakes that followed. We've seen the minister, I think, around two years ago, if I'm not mistaken, 
refer the matter to the uh, RNC, I do believe, or the RCMP. I think it was the RNC. Haven't heard a sound on any of that since. Maybe you have. Uh, I don't recall hearing anything about any update as to whether the RNC have determined there's any criminal charges to be laid, whether it's been determined by anyone that there's any civil actions uh, to be taken. Uh, you know, you hear about doctors, the shortage we have with, with, with doctors. And of course, now let's, we, let's take them one at a time. One at a time. So, the yeah. issues regarding the big benefits for the executives at Nalcor or Hydro, of course, that stopped, and you know, rightfully so. It had to go by the wayside. And that was absolutely the inability to read the room to give out those bonuses that particular last year that they got them when everybody else was looking at it. Okay, wait now, we're talking about my rates going through the roof, and we're giving bonuses out based on a good uh, safety track record. Of course, safety is important and safety would be paramount, I would imagine, for many people working in that field, but come on. It but they thankfully stopped. Ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous to stop, but it still happened. And, and, and like I say, then we have the report that was supposedly referred to the RNC two years ago. Haven't heard a sound around that. We had the situation with the school board and those uh, very expensive wheelbarrows and extension cords and so on. I wonder who was held accountable for that. We, 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 we have a recruitment office now to try to recruit doctors, but it was only a year ago I can remember hearing from doctors, and I talked to you about it on your show, and I, I talked to the minister about it, about the fact we had doctors at Mon Medical School that were graduating. They had heard from all the Atlantic provinces, and not one person from the health authorities of the Department of Health had ever reached out to them. They actually called Eastern Health at the time, a couple of them, and on a couple of occasions couldn't even get a return phone call. So now we put in a recruitment office. That's great. But who was in charge of recruitment before we put in that recruitment office? Who fell down on the job there? Who was being held accountable? Again, seemingly nobody being held accountable. So, you know, we Mon, everyone was all in a big outrage over what happened at Memorial University. Of course, uh, a lot of that outrage went to the former uh, president of Mon, and, and, and rightfully so. But it was more than the former president of Mon that would have been involved in the oversight of all this kind of stuff and, and the free reigns that were given. Who's been held accountable to Mon? We haven't heard a sound about Mon. Well, we'll move on. Well, well the, president, the president lost her job. Yes, correct. The president, yes, the president lost her job. But it was more than just the president. This wasn't one person. All the issues that have, have arisen at Mon, you, you could not throw it at all on one person. There's lots of people that were involved. Uh, that ought to have known better and whatever. So was there any accountability there? I mean, I, I don't know, Patty. But the point is, is that it seems like over and over again in government, we will have other general's reports will come out. Other issues will be, you know, investigations will come up. We had the whistleblower report come out. At the end of the day, more often than not, it's, we don't, it seems like we're not hearing about a whole lot of follow-up. We're not hearing about a whole lot of people being held accountable. I understand there's privacy, you can't release names and all that good stuff, but if people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing and it's costing taxpayers millions of dollars and so on, then I think we need to have some assurances that accountability is occurring. And if you don't have accountability and we just simply say, oh, well, we learned from that when we move on to the next time, then nothing is ever going to change. And I guess that's sort of the point I wanted to raise this morning. The issue regarding the English-speaking school district of what went on there, 
if uh, people lost their jobs, uh, there was, I think, a charge laid someone down on the Bjorn Peninsula for some phony invoices that were being paid out. I mean, that one was egregious to me because so what we saw is whether it be with the wheelbarrows and winter tires and that kind of stuff, they were purposefully splitting invoices under the threshold where they had to get a sign-off by a manager. So that's knowing full well exactly what you're doing to try to remove any of the in-place oversight and when it happened and I don't know exactly how many people lost their job as a result but there could have absolutely been uh, crimes charged at that moment in time and nothing really ever came of it. What became even more galling is then there was a recommendation put forward that they needed $2 million to put the required oversight in place. So while people were purposefully ripping us off then it was going to cost me another $2 million for people who are working on the public time, getting pretty well paid with pretty good benefits packages willfully and purposefully robbing me and or purposely splitting invoices so they don't get the attention of a manager. This just, I mean, that level of betrayal to the public purse is egregious. It, it, Patty, it absolutely is. And I guess, uh, and again, that's my point. Like, it's one thing, uh, yes, if somebody gets caught doing something, whatever, and, and that, but there's also supposed to be, I mean, we have, an, I mean, a big part of our budget is salaries. A lot of that are management salaries, uh, you know, and, and, and directors and ADMs and DMs and everything else. And at the end of the day, we should have an expectation that when it comes to government departments, boards, agencies, commissions, and so on, that all of the appropriate mechanisms are in place from a managerial point of view. We have all these mechanisms in place that are going to protect the public purse uh, so that these types of things don't happen. And if these things happen, and then we find out after the fact that we didn't even have these things in place, I mean, to, to find out that we had dark NL because nobody bothered to do maintenance, to find out that at Memorial University, which is actually teaching our business leaders of the future, they have a business school, and they didn't have, like, basic HR uh, processes, didn't, didn't understand who was responsible for, 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 for doing what, and, and there was a whole lot of issues that were raised in the other General's report around, man, you know, about the management. Never even had an organizational chart for the university. I mean, this is outrageous stuff. And, you know, obviously someone fell down on the job, and in that case it was certainly more than the president at the time and i guess all i'm saying is when it comes to all of these institutions government departments and so on we need to have accountability if people are not doing their jobs they have to be held accountable and if nobody's going to be held accountable or somebody say oh uh, this is a learning moment and let's move on then nothing is ever going to change and i guess that would be the overall point i'm trying to raise here this morning fair enough i appreciate the time Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, Paul Lane, of course, the independent member of Mount Pearl Southlands. And I just saw it as I was clicking the button there, someone saying, you know, how can Mr. Lane talk about accountability when he was a member of the PC government? And look, uh, Muscar Falls, you know, in fairness, he has owned that. You know, he, he knows exactly uh, how he and his party fell down on that front, and he has owned it. And, you know, on regarding that issue... I mean, some of the information that we maybe could have done something about, nobody ever knew. I mean, remember some of the emails that were uh, disclosed at the LeBlanc inquiry that we didn't even get information. They were told, you know, in, in, in emails, don't send this along to Cabinet. 
nuts. Then, you know, one of the companies that, of course, held an international disgrace, SNC-Lavalin, they actually wrote a report about the risks associated with the project, and we don't even know when it got read or if it got read until it was way too late. You know, we were way down the road of construction by the time we even knew that that company, who does have a terrible reputation for some well-deserved reasons, they wrote a report based on some of the absolute risks that came to pass eventually. And we didn't even know who read it or when they read it. I mean, it's just something else. Uh, just for your curiosity. So something that people will do inevitably, well, some people anyway, is having a tour around just to see how people's Christmas decorations look. You know, some of the families that go through uh, great expense and effort to put up pretty big displays of Christmas lights. And I think it's pretty cool myself. Someone just sent me this particular email regarding their light show they've got going. So this person says they watched YouTube over the summer and saw uh, lights that were singing. And so he wondered, or they wondered as the family, whether or not they could pull it off, and they've done it. They've got 11,000 Christmas lights up that sing. And so the thing runs on a loop for about an hour and a half. So every evening from 5 o'clock to 9.30 and 10.30 on the weekends, you can come by and have a look at their amazing Christmas setup. I had a look at it. It's really great. And so what they're asking for is to bring a food item that they're going to donate to the food bank. There's a QR code that's collecting donations for a mental health outreach program at the Worship Center. So this display is on the corner of Ruby Line and Diamond Marsh in Southlands. So 11,000 singing lights. They're calling it the Lights on Diamond Marsh. Great stuff. All right, let's take our final break in the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Daryl, you're on the air. Well, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Okay, how about you? Oh, doing good. Thanks, and thanks for having me on your show, dear. Uh, Patty, one comment today on time about uh, the, the Department of Transportation and uh, snow clearing up the highways. Uh, there last uh, Thursday morning, I had to cancel my appointment going from Gander to Grand Falls, Windsor, because the highways were just totally covered in slush, according to the reports. And uh, so I had to cancel uh, my appointment. But the thing is, now they don't start too early in the morning. I think it's about 7 in the morning. They don't have no night crews working at all. So if they had to have someone working the night crew, time morning came, the slush would have been uh, no slush or nothing on the roads because the precipitation stopped, I think it was before midnight or something like that. So, uh, I, I mean, why don't they, it's wintertime, so how come we're not having uh, crews work at nighttime as well to keep our roads uh, uh, clear and safe? Basically, the government stopped doing 24-7 snow clearing a number of years ago. Right. Yes, and I do understand that. And uh, so if they're trying to cut costs, it don't make sense because you're jeopardizing people's uh, lives or they can't get to their uh, destination if they're trying to save money because uh, government don't save money anyhow because if they try to save one way, it's out the door in another way, wasted. So what if they, if they don't want to employ more people, whatever the case may be, so if they know weather has happened beforehand according to the forecast, why don't they just switch the shift, having like certain individuals say work in daytime, put them on night shift, just alter it. Very simple. It could be, you know, and it's yeah. not, I don't think people are calling for the full-on restoration of 24-hour highway depot action, but when it yeah. looks like there's going to be the potential for ice and yeah. or there's going to be snow in the forecast, then we should have a shift on, as opposed to wait for it a call saying there's an emergency somewhere or an ambulance has been dispatched. I think there's just yeah. better ways we could probably attempt to manage this. 
Yes, and I totally agree. And you know, ahead of time, just alter or change the shift. That's all you got to do for that period or do something. Because I think that same day, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I stand to be corrected, I think a transport truck went off the road uh, near Glenwood. And I know the roads were totally slush, and that's why I canceled my appointment. I wouldn't take the chance because slush is probably worse than anything. And the, uh, and they showed that the whole road highway was, I heard on the radio, actually, and uh, that was totally covered in slush. And so I, I canceled my appointment. I wouldn't take that uh, I wouldn't take that uh, chance. So, uh, so I mean, we we got to look at people's uh, safety as well. So, uh, and you know, try to get to their destinations, whatever they might have to go. Sometimes you got to go out of town. You got appointments for various reasons. So, so it's very easy. Just alter the shift. Do you know ahead of time? Change it and put them on nighttime if you know, and then have the job done. No good starts like say seven in the morning, which I've seen the trucks all gassing up, getting ready to go. Uh, I mean, uh, they could have had the job done during the night. So I mean, time to gas up wherever they did it then. But I mean, it takes time before you get all the roads done to uh, power up the standard. So I think this is what they're going to have to look at. I mean, and you're only looking at this winter operations. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're not saying 24-7, 12 months of the year. It's just like the, for the winter operations or alter the shift or do something. I, I'd like for you to get the Minister of Transportation on the, on your show and, and address this issue. Yeah, we've asked them, and not long ago either. And the, okay. the answer is always the same. It's that if and when there is an emergency and the requirement for overnight snow clearing and or ice management, that they'll do it. But my comeback is always the same as well. Is Once an ambulance has been called and responding to an emergency, emergency, how long does it take for someone to get out of the bunk and now over to the depot and get into the equipment and get to where the ambulance is going versus just get it uh, cleared beforehand? Because if it's a real actual medical emergency, we don't really have time for someone to leave their house to go to the depot to get in the plow to come to where I am. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Whoa, uh, last whoa, yeah, last thoughts to you before I go. Yeah, yeah, uh, Patty, like you said, you, uh, you, you've got to be proactive rather than reactive, like what you just said. I'll give you an example. Look what happened down was on the news, Musgrave Town. The fire department couldn't get to uh, where they had to go because the roads were uh, too bad. They, they, they wouldn't risk it. And it was too, the roads were too uh, uh, snow-covered, slippery, whatever it was. I seen it on the news there, and they couldn't get down to uh, an emergency because uh, the, the roads weren't up to par. They, could, they couldn't risk their lives trying to get down there. So that's just an example there. So, so like you said, the government should rethink everything, and they're thinking and they're trained a thought in how they do things because, I mean, people's lives are important. So, I mean, you yes, know, you, you I, can't people's lives are important. Yes, they are, Daryl. Yes, exactly. So that's what okay. they got to look at. So, All right. Again, thank you for your time, Patty. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Daryl. Take care. All the best to you now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. <clears throat> let's go to line number four. Good morning, Sylvia. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for uh, calling. Actually, I was in the lineup for Friday, and I didn't get to talk to you. I hung up. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'd just like to clarify that Sheila O'Leary has been down to 10 City. She did drop down, and she paid her respects to the people down there. A lot of these people don't know who the politicians are, you know. Yeah, maybe, but you're clarifying this because I, I didn't hear anyone say that she hadn't been there. The media said that she had not. Well, they included everyone, the mayor and... All the councillors, no one went there, right? Okay. You had Ophelia on this morning? 
Is that her name? Ophelia Ravencroft, yeah, War II yeah. counselor. Yeah, so, I mean, she had her reasons for not going there, all right? But Sheila O'Leary was down there. Okay. You know, I just want to put that out there because, this, you know, everything is always put so general, you know. Anyway, we had a wonderful time. We did our display. Um, young artist Justin Squires did a huge banner. I don't know if you've seen it on Facebook or not. But we did get accepted in the Mount Pearl Parade, and we actually marched right behind the counselors, which was very nice. We got great applause from people as we passed by, and people were clapping and that. Um, and they understood about the homeless, and it was right across Canada. Uh, St. John's Parade yesterday, we didn't fare out too good um, because we didn't get approval to get in. But I did follow some protocol, I guess. I went against the rules of the downtown, but we marched 15 minutes ahead of them, of the police, first police car. So we weren't actually part of the Santa Claus Parade, but we did walk the full route, and we had people applauding and shouting, and it was very, very nice to know that there's a lot of compassion being shown. You know, there was just three of us in that, well, two of the boys, Justin Squires, the artist, and Mikey, one of the homeless, carried the banner, and I walked and just shouted, <laughs> you know, let's hear it for the homeless, you know. So I thought that was really good. Well, I'm glad you did it. Sylvia, anything else you want to say this morning before we run out of time? Oh, no, you just go on till the news now and the weather. Yeah, coming up. Thank Thank you for your time. Anytime, Sylvia. Take care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, and just to uh, think back to Mr. Lane's call regarding accountability after the fact. <clears throat> and again, so I got another note saying the exact same thing is that, you know, Paul Lane is a member of the PC party and his role and the party's role in the Muskrat Falls fiasco. And again, he has owned it. But when we talk about accountability for politicians, uh, of course, he's been reelected by the same folks that elected him when he was a Tory. So I guess that, you know, politics, politicians and accountability is different than people who are at the leads of agencies, boards, and corporations for the obvious reasons. Accountability comes with the fact I'll get a chance to vote for you or against you next time around. So I get where people are coming from on that one. Very quickly, and as you know, I'm pretty heartbroken for young Alex Nook and his 10 to 12 weeks off of the high ankle sprain. But something interesting is going to happen in the National Hockey League this evening. Uh, for the first time in their lives, Luke, Jack, and Quinn Hughes are going to be playing in the same NHL game as the Canucks play the Devils tonight. So it's actually happened nine times in history. The most recent time was when the Stall Boys were playing. Uh, Eric and Mark were playing for Florida, Jordan playing for Carolina, but it's happened nine times. But it's kind of extraordinary. No matter what the level of hockey, those three boys have never been on the ice together in an organized hockey game at any level. And it's happening for the first time in the NHL pretty cool stuff and as far as I can tell Quinn and Jack Hughes are amongst the best hockey players in the world I don't know if you've ever watched either one of them play but they are absolutely outstanding I haven't seen that much of Luke of course he's a rookie but Quinn and Jack Hughes whoa all right good show today we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's open line on behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host Patty Daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye